I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Do you watch Jeopardy? I like Jeopardy. Jeopardy is the only show that I make a point to watch just about every day. My wife and I watch it. Even Carmine watches it, even though he doesn't really understand the clues. And I have to tell you, I, I, I always have my strong points and my weak points. For instance, uh, yesterday there was a category, RSVP to my political party. And I knew that I was going to be the only person in my household that got every single one of those clues. And that was in Double Jeopardy, by the way, where there are greater totals. Uh, If there's ever a question about uh, the New York Mets or classic baseball, I know I'm getting all those. I know my, uh, obviously, any questions related to the New York area, I know I'm getting those. But it's a funny thing that's happened with me over the last two years. Over the last two years, all of a sudden, when there are categories that have to do with space, planets, astronomy, or anything having to do with celestial bodies, all of a sudden these used to be categories that I'd get maybe half the questions correct, come up with the correct response maybe two-thirds of the time. And over the last two years, I have found myself getting nine out of ten of these questions correct in category after category having to do with space. And I I have not been moonlighting as an astronomy student in my spare time, which is non-existent. However, I have benefited over the course of the last two years from my conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, and I suspect you have as well. If you're a new listener to our show and you have not yet heard Dr. Sky, then buckle up. Because for the next hour, we are going to take you on a journey about what's happening in the stars. Maybe you'll never get to go to space. In fact, chances are you probably won't. But you'll know a bit more about what's going on in space because not only does Steve Cates have a great great voice, but he's got a great mind, and he's got a way of explaining things in a manner that even laymen like me can understand. He is a veteran TV and radio broadcaster, an edutainer who knows all about a whole bunch of subjects, including astronomy and space, and he's uh, now officially a contributor to WABC in New York, and you can check out his podcast at WABCradio.com. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Happy Thanksgiving Eve. Well, happy Thanksgiving Eve to you, Frank, and thank you very much for the introduction. Always a pleasure to be on the other side of midnight. 
and so much going on in these realms, astronomy, space, even aviation, and even weather. So You, you, you said it. You said it. And if people have questions, by the way, they can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let's begin with uh, one of the most exciting things that happened last week. And the only thing that was missing from our broadcast when we carried this live was we didn't have you to give us live commentary and live play-by-play. I was I sort of had to struggle to make it sound like I knew something about what was going on. And that is the launch of Artemis 1. What is yeah. Artemis 1? What happened last week? Where is Artemis now? Well, it's interesting, Frank. Let's go back in the time capsule because Artemis 1, the most powerful rocket ever launched by humans to date, had a long track record of, you know, slow track record, I should say, of actually getting up to getting into space. Lots of problems on the ground, hydrogen leaks, blah, 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 dot, dot, dot. But it's so interesting. We all watch this you know, launch, and it's so incredible because let's go back in time. This is a nighttime launch. I was amazed that they would even do this at night. I would think, well, old school, what? You want to see everything? You need daylight? You want to watch the rocket? We haven't had a rocket like this, a rocket launch, since Apollo 17 back in 1972, a night launch, in which people described it as extremely bright, lit up the sky like the sun. Actually, the ground rumbled. It sounded, felt like there was an earthquake when the rocket took off. So here's this rocket. It gets off and clears the big tower, 39B, and it did some damage to launch pad 39B. We'll talk about that, too. But as it goes out into space, some interesting photographers out there, really talented individuals from the press corps, they caught some amazing, iconic pictures of the rocket moving up, and it so happened to be right in the same frame as the moon in the sky, its destination. So lo and behold, Artemis, eight and a half million pounds of thrust, launches off that launch pad, and it's powered by these four RS-25 rockets, chemical rockets, and two rather extended from the space shuttle days, large solid rocket motors. And let's describe the fuel of the solid rocket motors. It's like the back of a pencil, like an eraser-type material, not made of rubber. But once you light those, you can't shut them off. So you see this rocket moving out in this big plume, actually almost twice the length of the rocket. And the rocket's 322 feet long. So the purpose of this big rocket, you have to get this ability to launch something into space to get it out of Earth's orbit, which now, this Orion spacecraft, that's what's headed to the moon, has gone to the moon. And yesterday, I don't know, Frank, if you got to see some of these most amazing videos, I was watching this from home on a large screen TV through the NASA channel. And I hope everybody got an experience or a chance to see it. If not, it's all over YouTube. But that was so incredible because it got down as low as about 80 miles above the lunar surface. And what you saw then, they fired a rocket, now moving it out. It's exiting out of the sphere of influence of the moon. I believe that happened uh, last evening at around 11.31 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it's going in what we call a retrograde orbit, opposite the direction that the moon is, is actually turning. And what's interesting about this, no spacecraft has ever gone as far meaning a, a human-capable spacecraft. Apollo 13 did this a long time ago when it safely made it back to the moon, almost barely, I mean, back to the Earth. But this rocket will go about another 40,000 miles above the moon and swing back one more time and use that kind of a little kick, you know, the swing around gravity assist of the moon to get back to the Earth. But I find this so fascinating because here we are. You know, we haven't done this since Apollo 8, even though there are three dummy or mannequins on board. But this is just mind-boggling, and I hope everybody stays in touch on the video side of this because there's so much to talk about what's going on in the capsule and what's happening outside. 
But there's also a tiny spacecraft, Frank, that's a little tiny thing called a CubeSat called Capstone. And it also is in orbit tracking out this or measuring out this orbit that they're going to take because eventually they're going to build a space station called Gateway. And this time, the astronauts who go to the surface of the moon will have the luxury, at least that's what I think, if they need supplies or something, going from the lunar surface back up to the Gateway space station, you know, take a shower, have something to eat, get everything together, and then make the journey back to the Earth. So all this is purposeful, and it's just magic, it seems like, don't you think? That other, uh, certainly, that other vehicle, uh, Capstone, that other spacecraft's Capstone, where mm-hmm. is that, Adam, uh, at the moment? Is that traveling in concert with Artemis, or is that something that's coming later? No, it's actually in orbit, not not riding side by side. It's actually in orbit. I think it went into orbit, and if I'm not sure, I'll be honest always. But I know it went into orbit, at least that's what I believe I read just a couple of days ago. But it's so tiny, it's the size of a microwave oven. That's how small that little spacecraft is. And also, another great thing that this particular uh, Orion spacecraft did, it deployed about 10 little CubeSat spacecraft. In other words, they're all going to have little missions and tracking, and I believe one of them is actually supposed to go to the surface of the moon and do a landing on the surface of the moon. But it's, again, imagine seeing a little thing if you're flying in space the size of a microwave oven. The technology behind CubeSats is just so amazing. These are really inexpensive but purposeful little satellites. And so far, it looks like they're doing a pretty good job. I think there's a few that they haven't been able to contact but overall, wow, those are exciting times Absolutely. to be alive. Absolutely. We're talking space with Steve Cates. If you have questions, we'll take them. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So what is our best estimate at this point, Steve, of when Artemis will reach the moon? And I guess the more consequential question is, assuming all goes well, what's the best estimate of when we can return a manned mission to the moon? Excellent, because it's all part of this series. Artemis two. When it does launch, sometime, hopefully in 2024, same rocket, you know, but this time three astronauts on board, they will make a a circumnavigation of the moon. They'll further test out the systems on this particular Orion spacecraft, which, by the way, is a joint venture. The capsule itself and the rest of the, you know, body of the spacecraft, the European Space Agency, I believe, has the primary responsibility for the backward part, you know, that attaches to the the capsule itself. But in this Orion capsule, it's like a, you know, one on steroids of the original Apollo capsule. It should be able to at least hold at least seven astronauts capable. And then beyond that, we'll hopefully go. And this timeline is very fuzzy right now, Frank. Nobody actually has a definitive date. But if all this goes well, maybe as early as 2025, the first crew that will actually go down to the surface of the moon land there. And they've already mapped out, that is NASA, a whole bunch of locations on the surface of the moon at the south pole of the moon. I believe there's about 10 or 12 locations, so things are getting exciting. So I would say, if all goes well, maybe by 2025, and who knows, maybe they'll push it back a year to 2026, we'll have the first female astronaut, that's what they're telling us, and also another crew to go to the surface of the moon, and then eventually build a small habitat, maybe on the surface, And hopefully Gateway gets built, so we'll have maybe the possibility of having like a little hotel in space Mm. around the moon. Fingers crossed. That would be be absolutely terrific. Hey, were we hit, meaning we the planet, with an asteroid four days ago? Absolutely. And this is another great story. I mean, all this great space news, now we go into this one. A small object alleged to be about maybe two feet in diameter. And this is the part that I get really excited about, and people should, of course, 
think, wow, you know, these scientists, when their predictions, this time, a tiny little object, this was discovered a few hours before it actually intercepted the Earth. It was done out here in, uh, in Arizona, Mount Lemmon Observatory. The astronomers there, maybe one very lucky astronomer, detected an object on one of his photographic plates. And he said, let's do a calculation size-wise and where it's going to come down. So the short story is the object was said to come back and hit the Earth, and I say hit the Earth, in about maybe three or four hours. So what they did, they worked out the calculations. They stated that it would probably enter the Earth's atmosphere above, let's say, Portland and Oregon, travel over the top of the United States. And what it did, Frank, on schedule, the prediction was that it would probably enter the atmosphere around 3.25 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the 19th. And maybe lucky observers, I don't know how well they're doing, God bless them with all the tons of snow that they've got there, it was captured above all places on the big CN Tower in Toronto. It has this little you know, webcam, I guess, that goes and shows you the tower. Right down smack dab in the middle of the field, you see this. And now, at least astronomers are saying that this object, probably when it disintegrated, some say it actually popped in the air, because that's what a bolide does, you know, brighter than the full moon, maybe way brighter than the full moon. So I don't know for sure, but there's a strewn field. Some of it's in the lake. I guess that's Lake Ontario. And also some particles on the ground. But what's really interesting about this, the asteroid had the designation then. It's a, it no longer exists. It was asteroid 2022 WJ1. And to give the short answer, they named these asteroids, of course, during time of the year, all kinds of things down to days and hours. But isn't that amazing? It's only the sixth time in history that we have astronomers predicting an asteroid that's coming only hours before that the object is not going to miss the Earth, but it's going to hit it. And this particular object, no one knows for sure. It could have been three feet, maybe four feet in diameter. I'll go with the smaller side. But what this particular object is probably like, and it's very interesting, it's more like a chondrite, meaning it's a rocky metal, you know, iron, nickel, iron kind of a meteor. But those parts are precious, so if anybody, and of course this radio station signal and where you are around the country, if anybody is uh, interested in this, what would you find? It's, and here, here's a luck, there's a little bit of luck in this. Anytime you're looking for meteors, I would want to be in Antarctica or the pole because it's pretty much laden with snow and ice. So what color are meteors? I don't see any white crusted meteors. So anything that you see in a field that's covered with snow and it looks strange, it would have a burnt crust on it. And it's not dangerous to touch. I mean, obviously, if it just came down, I wouldn't go near it because it's still hot. But it's interesting. It's almost kind of reminiscent of what happened, though it was a bigger on a much larger scale, when the Russian Chelyabinsk asteroid body came through the Earth back in February the 15th of 2013. That then was 66 feet in diameter. It actually caused damage to over 7,200 buildings and 1,500 people were actually injured, not because the asteroid you know, broke up and they got hit in the head with a piece of it, but the shock wave was just so powerful that it disintegrated so many of the building's windows, and it's amazing wow. those videos. Oh, yeah, this is incredible. And here is where it came from. That Chelyabinsk, not the one we're just talking about, the little tiny one. But imagine seeing a 66-foot-in-diameter piece of nickel iron burning hot. I mean, literally, you wouldn't want to touch it, obviously. It came 15 degrees from the direction of the sun on that morning, and it had the explosive force. Here, here's, this is an actual fact here, that it had the explosive force of 500 kilotons. Now, if you go on the scale of nuclear weapons, we go back to Hiroshima. 
Maybe, if we're lucky at the time, they detonated that with an explosive force of probably, and I'm being on the high side, maybe about 13 or 14 kilotons. So could you imagine from something only 66 feet across, you got the residual you know, effect, the blast effect of something about a 500 kiloton type of a nuclear device. But the energy is different, of course. You know, It's not something that has nuclear material on board. But I sure wouldn't want to be the heck in the way of that. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. But, if... the, yeah, the two-footer that came over Canada or over – I think it's actually closer. If you go from Niagara Falls, I've been up there many times. You drive on, I think that's QEW Freeway. And just as you get – before you get to Hamilton and swing around the lake to go to Toronto, that area, just a little bit, I believe, to the east of uh, – I'm trying to think Hamilton is probably the area. I forget the exact name of the city, but if anybody's listening to us there right now, if you notice anything that's rocky and uh, looks like it's burnt, like it has a burnt crust on it, uh, especially if it's lying in a snowfield, you might have a piece of that. Hmm. It'd be interesting to find one. Uh, that's for sure. If people just tune in, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you want to listen to the Dr. Sky Experience, a terrific podcast ex- with some great interviews and some great uh, commentary, you can go to wabcradio.com slash Dr. Sky. If you want to check out the Dr. Sky blog, you can go to ktar.com. And if you have uh, questions about uh, subjects that we don't get to in the course of the hour. You can also just email him at drskyshow at uh, gmail.com. Squeeze in a few quick questions here, and then I have many others. Steve sure. is on Long Island. Hello, Steve. Hey, Frank. Hey. And good morning. Dr. Sky. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, I hope you guys are well. I don't mean to get into, like, conspiracies and all that. I wanted to ask Dr. Sky's opinion on William Milton Cooper, how... Uh, you know, we only see one side of the moon at all times. And he said something back many years ago about a base on the back of the moon. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm just curious of his opinion. Well, no, you bring up no, you bring up some good points, though. But I think it's interesting. We've mapped the entire surface of the moon right now. And it's actually strange, Steve, because the surface of the moon on the front side that we see, the near side, it has the reminiscent things of different faces if you look at those seas on the moon. But the problem with the other side of the moon, the, as we call it correctly, the far side, not the dark side, and I don't mean to be particular here, there is really not that many areas on that side of the moon that would even give us any indication of any kind of shapes of anything. In other words, it's mostly cratered, and it really would be kind of boring if we had that side of the moon facing us. We're lucky we have the near side, but uh, not any much more I could add to that one. 800-848-9222. Gus is in Manhattan. Hello, Gus. Hey, I was. Uh, hey, Gus, how, how you good doing, morning. guys? Hey, good I, I morning. I was in the Bronx. I was in the Bronx yesterday. I think, yeah, yesterday, like around three forty, and I saw the meteoroid. Wow! I was like, "What the hell is that?" I was like, "Holy cow!" Wow, you saw it. it. And it disintegrated. <laughs> yeah, I was driving. I was going home, and it disintegrated right in front of me. I was like, oh. "What?" I thought it was a UFO, but it was. Uh, <laughs> it was the meteoroid. Yeah. Hey, I was well, like, Gus, oh, that was so cool. You know, Gus, that's yeah. awesome, because very few people get to see these things, and most of them are captured, guys. Guess where most of these are captured? On doorbell cameras now. <laughs> you know, people have all these technology things. But, hey, count yourself, and uh, if we had an award, I'd give Gus one, because, hey, that, yeah, that's over, a pretty good testimonial. <laughs> over I love Bronx, it. Over, over the Bronx and Yonkers, that's where it was. That's where it happened. It was like a second, just a second. I was like, I just caught it. I was like, holy cow, that was so awesome. Yeah. See, Gus, that's yeah. great. Keep your, What do we say here, right, Frank? Keep your eyes to the skies, Gus. Hey, thanks for that exactly. report. Exactly. Gus, thank you. Hey, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. A number of other areas we're going to, going, we're going to get into with Dr. Sky throughout the hour, including 
some interesting happenings with the James Webb Space Telescope, both in space and here on Earth. We'll get into that and a whole bunch more. If you have questions, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano joined for the hour by steve cates aka dr sky a veteran radio and tv broadcaster and edutainer who studies astronomy who studies space who studies aviation and you can check out his podcast the doctor Sp- the, the dr sky experience by going to wabcradio.com slash dr sky hey steve on the on the airplane front uh there was some interesting news recently that uh, apparently there are plans afoot to build an airplane with the largest wingspan in history is that accurate well, it is accurate, and it's actually something interesting to report here. It's actually a real live aircraft, and this is something that's really been around for a while. And I want to describe this. Uh, Mr. Allen, who was a big part of Microsoft before he passed away. Paul Allen. Paul Allen. He, yes, he, he wanted to develop something very quiet. He was quiet about this, and they really put their uh, you know energies to building this largest aircraft. So here it is. We always refer back in history to the spruce goose, you know, that Howard Hughes had built and flew one time back in November of 1947 in the Long Beach Harbor. That had a wingspan of 320 feet. But the one that Scaled Composites has built, and people can go on the web and just look at this. It's so amazing. It's a twin fuselage aircraft called a Stratolaunch. And they just don't build these things just to have a record of a big wingspan. There's a big purpose behind it, and that is to eventually launch satellites into space and rocket-powered, you know, rocket propulsion to get a satellite into orbit. But here it is. This particular vehicle, amazing. I'd love to see it. We may actually take a trip out there as media and go to do a little interview on it. But Stratolaunch has the now largest wingspan in the entire world, 352 feet wingspan from one end to the other. So larger than a football field. But what's amazing about this, it's a twin fuselage aircraft with six jet engines on it. And a lot of people for the longest time, and it's very sad to report this, I think from the aviation world, people know about this. But the Antonov Bureau, the design bureau in Russia, this really goes to the credit of the Ukrainians. They had the largest transport aircraft ever built, the Antonov 225, which sadly, because of the war with Russia and the Ukraine, sadly, imagine this, how sad, they went into the hangar and literally, you know, placed shape charges on there, like explosives, like grenades, and blew that thing to smithereens. But on the positive side, the story is that Paul Allen's dream 
of something to build the largest wingspan aircraft in the world, a jet aircraft called Strato Launch. That would be quite amazing to see coming into a local airport, don't you think? Oh, that is uh, that is for sure. Just to give people some perspective, your average uh, jet, your average seven forty seven that you might hop on a flight from New York mm-hmm. to Chicago or sure. um, you know Florida to Las Vegas. How big is one of those? The wingspan of one of those airplanes? Approximately two hundred and thirty feet. And if you look at that aircraft, I mean, now Boeing apparently is not building on the assembly line. If you talk to a lot of people in the aviation world. Look and see how many airlines are actually flying 747s. They're not because, well, they were some of the most amazing aircraft ever built. And I remember we had an interview a long, long time ago when I was talking about the history of Boeing and the aircraft that are built for those listeners out there that know so much about the Seattle area and Everett and Boeing Field near near downtown uh, you know, Seattle. We had an interview with a gentleman named Joe Sutter. Now, who's Joe Sutter? He was the designer of the Boeing 747. So he had this archive of aviation. You know, and I was just a guest. I mean, I was just like, wow, here's a guy that not only designed it, he developed it. The city of Everett was the very first 747. And I think they go up to the big extended stretch cargo version now. But most airlines, Frank, have opted for the you know fuel efficiency to go with the triple sevens. And let's not forget another of the giant aircraft in the world. I've never flown one. But I've seen them at the Los Angeles at the LAX airport in Los Angeles, the Airbus A380, and maybe I'm I'm, well, I'm confident that many listeners out there have flown on it. It's a most amazing twin double deck aircraft, not like a 747 that has just a short bulge on the upper deck. This thing has a continuous upper deck, but it's so massive that certain airports in the world couldn't even land there because their structure of the runway, they would have dropped all the tires on the ground and cracked the runway as it's going down. So their efficiency now is to go to these, you know, more efficient jet engines like 777s, but uh, 747s, I love them. And that was our Sophia plane that we flew in before they retired that. It was a special version that Boeing built in the 1970s called the Boeing 747SP, a shorty version of the 747. And I'll never forget the great times we had on Sophia going up in the air for 13 hours with the 100-inch telescope up there. I'll never forget that, Frank. That was great. One of the things I really always love to do whenever you're on, and uh, apparently a lot of the listeners get a lot out of this, is ask you what's worth seeing in the night sky. You call it the uh, live wow. sky update or the live sky sure. report. What can people look forward to seeing? A lot of people may get uh, a four-day weekend uh, this weekend well, because of uh, Thanksgiving and Black Friday. If they have some extra time and maybe can stay up a little later and stare into the night sky, what should they be looking for? Well, here we go. Kind of a quick synopsis. Right now, we find the moon is new. So this is interesting, meaning there's no light of the moon. And what we call this moon is a new supermoon, not like new in the sense meaning like new moon type, not just new that it's never been around. But the point is, this and the next few days are good if you're looking for faint sky facts. So what we'll start off with, Frank, is the planetary objects. The planet Mercury in early December is going to start coming back into the evening sky. Most people have never seen it. Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, may be one of the stars of the great story of the Star of Bethlehem and the Christmas star. That'll slowly come into the sky. But for this weekend, just simply look high into the south at sunset. Naked eye will show Saturn over 900 million miles from your eye. But the easy one, if you miss that, just to the left, as the sun is setting, just look up there. The bright white object in the sky is not a UFO, it's Jupiter. And it now is over 400 million miles away from your eye. Telescopes and binoculars show a great amount of detail. But the big one, Frank, is the planet Mars, the red god of war. 
it rises right around 7 p.m. in the northeast. So that's that yellowish orange object that you see. Mars is creeping close to the Earth right now. It gets closest to us on the, on the morning of the 7th of December. And for the good part of the listening audience out there, I don't know if the New York area has this, but we'll have much more posted at the Dr. Sky Experience on our podcast. This is interesting. The full moon that occurs on December the 7th, what will happen then is for people across much of the United States and North America, you will see the moon eclipse Mars when it's brightest in the sky. So if you see it with the naked eye, you can go, oh, look at that, and all of a sudden the moon will hide it for an hour. But the other thing is, Frank, since everybody hopefully can get out there this weekend, this is fireball season. So if you look into the night sky, just like we talked about a few minutes ago with the big fireball, there's more and more of these fireballs that come through the month of November because there's a number of these meteor streams that intersect the Earth. So what is it? Eyes to the skies. You'll have no moon to interfere. So if you live in an area where you can get away from city lights, but even city dwellers can watch those planets. Now, that is uh, pretty neat. You have questions, you can call in 800-848-9222. One of the issues that I've been very curious about my whole life, and we've spent a great deal of time talking about on the radio, has been the idea of whether or not there are extraterrestrials out there anywhere and whether or not they visited this planet. And uh, it was interesting, last week, uh, some NASA scientists came out with this revision of something they call the Great Filter Theory, which says, uh, in words or substance, that uh, we probably are alone in the universe and that there probably have been all sorts of other civilizations, but they end up uh, blowing themselves up Planet of the Ape style before they can end up visiting other planets. Curious if you saw that and if you did, did. what your reaction to it was. Oh, I did, Frank, and it's very interesting. You know, this this big, this big great filter that many astronomers and astrophysicists believe, well, we sent all these signals out. And the intention is that these space civilizations, if the extraterrestrials are out there, they don't want to communicate with us. But the new theory, as you just mentioned accurately, is that maybe they have never lived that long, and they got to a level of technology where they destroyed our, where they, excuse me, destroyed themselves. So again, if you don't learn from history, I guess that would be the line. We're all, you know, sad to repeat the same thing again. But that's very interesting because if you look at the on the cosmic scale. Our sun is an average-sized star. It's a middle-aged star, and we're not going into too much detail. There's a large area in the stellar evolution called this particular thing where the, where the stars all form on the thing called a main sequence. And what's interesting about that, we lie along the main sequence. So if we're looking for an Earth-like planet, should it be most likely, because we're the only one we've found around a sun-like star. But we're finding out that it's more likely, that is astronomers and astrophysicists, that life might abound around these very tiny end-of-life stars called red dwarfs. And people would imagine and say, well, wait a minute, I thought you need all this light and energy to live in a habitable zone. But let's be careful for what we wish for, because there's a number of these star systems that astronomers have found, like the Gliese system that's out there. One of the Gliese systems that the astronomers have detected have seven major planets, they think, right around it. And it's not powered by a super bright sun-like star. It's powered by a, a red dwarf star. And theoretically, there's objects that are, lie within an area that would be consistent with life. So who knows? Maybe, maybe this theory is right about the great filter that, well, they all couldn't get along either. 
And maybe that's why there seems to be nobody knocking back when we bang three times on the door. 800-848-9222. Bob is in Yonkers. Bob, you're on with Steve Cates. Good morning. Good morning. Scott, I got a question for you. As you know, China has a very aggressive space program. Oh, yes. They should get to the moon first. Can they legally claim the planet for themselves? Well, they can try, and there's this whole thing about space law, and I'm not an attorney, but I can just report to you this much, Bob. No, they they can do whatever they want, and maybe that's where hostilities would grow in the future. Let's hope not. I want to be an eternal optimist. So America, when it landed on the surface of the moon, as we do know many times, you know, 12 astronauts went there. We didn't decide to make it the, what, another state of the United States. So they don't have any legal authority to do that. But I think they're all too smart to even try a trick like that, because basically what I think a lot of these nations want to do, America included, is they want to look at the possibility. This is a big business, Bob, that's going to come up here. And I've been reading a lot about this, and I think you've seen it, Frank, Mm -hmm. the whole moon economy. Uh, You know, but now Bob may have a good point, because what if now one of the countries like China decides to start mining what do we do about mineral rights? And, and then this could escalate into further problems because, again, it's probably going to be all about money because you're going to harvest some material on the surface of the moon, gentlemen, that we call helium-3. And, again, that could be a fuel in which could power so many things here on the Earth and on the surface of the moon and do it with little investment. But you have to enrich it if you bring it back to the Earth. So, Bob, you bring up a good point, but they can't claim it for themselves. Uh, I want to follow up on the the mining aspect and the material aspect mm-hmm. of lunar exploration in, in a minute or two. But just as far as the claiming the moon goes, I remember after America made it to the moon, beating the Soviet Union there, which was a, a big coup, there were a bunch of countries that were signatories to an international agreement that said uh, that the moon would not be used for colonization by one country or something along those lines is to the best of your knowledge Mm -hmm. uh, with the with the proviso as you stated that you're not an attorney uh, do you know if china was a signatory to that agreement i don't i don't honestly know that frank and i think the best example is and what bob brought up very fascinating uh, you know question the point is look at antarctica I mean, obviously, we've had explorers, mostly American, Danish. We've had a few others, of course, Russian and then Soviet uh, explorers. But if you look at Antarctica, it's not like one place or one country owns it. In the 1940s or late 30s, actually, Hitler tried to go out and dominate the (laughs) – this is crazy. They tried to dominate Antarctica and name it, you know, in honor of the Reich, that it would be another part of their homeland. Well, simply you cannot do that. But I think that's something I should be looking into, too, and all of us out there, that, you know, this is going to be a big business, which we're talking about is this moon economy. And if you have an economy, you're going to have to have regulations. So we're probably looking into the future. Uh, how do we how do we you know measure that and, and, and how do we monitor that and make it all peaceful? And that's the word, peaceful. We don't mm-hmm. want a war on the moon. Imagine oh, somebody saying they're going to nuke the moon. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Yeah, no, I can't imagine what that would do to the waves. If, right. if people have questions, uh, give us a call, 800-848-9222. Let me ask you about the James Webb Space Telescope before we sure. get to some of the fascinating images that we're seeing, courtesy mm-hmm. of the James Webb Space Telescope. Let me ask you about some of the controversy involved in the name James Webb. Uh, James Webb was a NASA administrator, and, yes. and it was reported recently that apparently he might have been 
discriminating against some people because of their their sexual orientation, and he might right. have been involved in some firings of employees based on their sexual orientation. This has created a whole fervor, and Chanda Prescott Weinstein, who describes herself as a black mm-hmm. queer cosmologist, she mm-hmm. spoke to NPR about the need to rename the James Webb Telescope. I really just want to see rationale, and I want to see openness, and right now we're not seeing either, and that breaks my heart. And as of now, NASA has said they are sticking with James Webb, the name, and they're not going to change it. Do you think, what does the historical record show about what kind of a person James Webb was? And do you think he's going to be able to keep his name on this telescope? Well, honestly, simply this. I'm always honest. I wasn't around during the time he was the administrator. But so many people out there, as the lady who was just on there, as you reported to us, and we we heard the comment, There's so many people out there that say, I mean, there's some, I don't know how accurate it is, that he was a misogynist, you know, he had a hateful way toward women and discriminated against minorities. I don't know that, but I think NASA's going to keep that particular name, right or wrong. But then again, we could, you know, go and split hairs on many other objects that were named in honor of people. How deep do we have to go into people's backgrounds? And very simply, I don't condone that kind of behavior, but... uh, you're not really talking about me, are you? So there you go. <laughs> this is true. 800-848-9222. You talk about the moon and the opportunity for uh, commercial benefit there. And, and a lot of folks are saying that the successful moon rocket launch last week could be a boon for private companies. They're saying as the global economy, uh, the global economic growth slows, space and lunar exploration specifically could become a source of ignition for all sorts of new ventures, all sorts of new jobs. And uh, there's all sorts of plans by both the private sector and by governments internationally to tap into the commerce of the moon. Oh, yeah. What exactly could um, could we see on this planet in terms of material riches, courtesy of lunar travel? Well, Frank, in addition to people talking about a green economy, I think there's also a great opportunity, which may be you know, very realistic to some people. Once we get to the moon, and I'm going to project this out, it's not something that we're going to be talking about probably not until a decade or more, but mining materials on the surface of the moon. We know that the moon, and this is Harrison Schmidt, one of the, the, the only geologists to ever go to the moon on Apollo 17, and he's been you know, clamoring for this for years, even when he was a U.S. senator. He made a statement in saying that, you know, if we could harvest this isotope called helium-3 on the moon, what is it? It's enriched in the soil of the lunar surface because there's no atmosphere to speak of. So the sunlight, with all the neutrinos and all the particles that come from the sun, it energizes a lot of this material in the surface of the moon. And without going into a long dissertation, if you were able to scoop it up, you know, kind of like a water desalination plant in a way. You take an ingredient and you do something to it to remove something. But in this case, you're harvesting it. And it could actually be a fuel of the future to power things. How clean is it? I think it's very clean. And they've, they've got, you know, scholars on this whole subject that talk at length. You know, books are written on this. So there itself could be a, you know, a whole, a whole growth industry for the moon economy. And then also, you know, it usually starts off with very wealthy people. In addition to going to the International Space Station and the Gateway, there could be, hopefully, and this is way into the future, maybe another 50 years, a lunar tourism thing that you, your family, and little Carmine who's celebrating, you know, first birthday, he has the best chance to do it and go to the surface of the moon as a tourist. Now, 
wouldn't that be a dream for Carmine? Uh, that's for sure. He seems uh, to to be really into staring at ceiling fans. Wow. So he really likes looking up and seeing things that spin. So I don't know that he's quite grasped the moon yet, but he does like <laughs> lights and he does like ceiling fans. So once he gets his uh, head around what the moon is, forget about it. It's just going to blow his mind. We're going to continue with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. If you want to check out his podcast and uh, see a lot of the other stuff that he's covered, even beyond the world of space and astronomy, some great interviews on there, some great commentary on there, you can go to wabcradio.com slash Sky, just D-R-S-K-Y. You can also check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. We're going to continue. We'll take your questions in just a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's just another night And I'm staring at the moon I saw a shooting star and thought of you I sang a lullaby by the waterside and knew if you were here I'd sing to you you're on the other side as the skyline splits in two miles away from seeing you I can see the stars from America This is All of the Stars by Ed Sheeran. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, we list all of our bumper music in our Facebook group. Uh, just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters, or just go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Uh, continuing our conversation with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you have questions, we'll take them, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Vinny in New Jersey. Hello, Vinny. Yeah, how you doing there, Frank? I'm well. Hey, good, good morning, Vinny. How you doing, Mr. Sky? Doing my good, uh, doing well, thanks. Well, by listening to your show, uh, I've learned that the Earth is the third planet from the sun and the fifth largest planet and the densest major body in the solar system. My question is, do that the oxygen in Earth's atmosphere is produced and maintained by biological process. Without life, there would be no oxygen. Do you feel, because of the rapid extinction of wildlife and the deforestry and the destructive elements going into the sea like plastics. Mm-hmm. Is there a possibility that that uh, Earth could run out of oxygen? Well, no, I don't, Vinny, and I'm being an optimist here, too. I mean, my answer is honest. We've had great extinctions in the world, and we talked about this a while ago on other shows. 500 million years ago, there was a problem where the Earth had a lack of oxygen. Something caused it, whether it was an asteroid impact or what have you. But it looks like the Earth is pretty solid in its ability to produce, you know, oxygen. But let's look at the whole shebang. Let's take the Earth if it was the size of a little apple. The troposphere in which the weather, the weather sphere, which is the oxygen sphere, if you look at it, it's so precious, and we're just hoping and praying that we keep it, and I think we will. It would be the thickness of the skin on the apple. Isn't that incredible? 
So I'm a, I'm an optimist. I think that, you know, obviously we don't want to see pollution, and I know we have plenty of it. But the oxygen in this particular planet should remain constant or at least grow. And obviously we need more plants out there to continue to pump out what they produce by taking in CO2 and pushing out oxygen. It takes a bowl to rub my shoulders. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, happy Thanksgiving. First. Happy Thanksgiving, you too, buddy. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. You uh, got it. Well said. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Let me also ask you about um, what what the local group of galaxies that we're seeing. We're seeing some interesting images, courtesy of the James Webb Telescope, and uh, they look to me and a lot of untrained eyes as yeah. a lot of pretty pictures, but. Apparently, there's actually some pretty significant scientific significance to these images, including the local group of galaxies and what might lie beyond them. What do we know about some of these images that we're seeing and what are we learning about the not just our galaxy, but other galaxies? Well, let's go to the James Webb images, one of the most amazing images yet. It was an object called Glass Z12. It's a categorization like a group of scientists that put these names out there. Why is this so important? It's been able to peer with its giant 21-foot mirror all the way back to after the big expansion. I tend to call it the big expansion, not necessarily the Big Bang. Only 350 million years after the shebang started to expand. So that's really peering in almost to ground zero, to speak. But this whole thing about local group, I just wanted to give this very quickly. The Milky Way, one galaxy, which if you were to see how long it takes the sun to go around the galaxy, uh, we, we go around the, around the sun every year, right? It takes 260 million years for our star to go around this big pinwheel. That grouping of stars, the Milky Way, probably has maybe 200 billion stars, maybe more, I don't know. But we're part of a local group of galaxies, like a cluster of them outward. There's about 80 of those, Frank, in that cluster, and they go out to well over 10, 20 million light years. The Andromeda Galaxy is part of that, and there's a whole bunch of these little dwarf galaxies that lie within that. But then it gets more interesting. The next bigger set beyond that is something called the Virgo Supercluster, and that contains millions of more galaxies surrounded around something. And then, yeah, you bet, it gets even more interesting. There's something which is even larger than that, another subsystem or set above it called the Laniakia supercluster, which is probably like we're talking about billions of light years out in the universe. So we're a tiny part of a gigantic system. We know that. And obviously, yet to date, to this date, we haven't found one planetary object as close to the Earth that now has what, Frank? Eight billion registered people on the Earth? I don't know if they're all registered, but... (laughs) They're there. I don't know what they'd register for, but it's amazing how precious the universe really is. And obviously, I'm, a, I'm in a more of a sentimental mode for giving thanks for Thanksgiving. We all have things to be thankful for, the ones we love, those that have passed on to the infinite, and for any other thing that you want to be thankful for. But I'm thankful for something else, and I think many are too, that we live in this vast cosmos, an amazing array. We have no answers to things out there, and we're still searching every day to learn more about it. And as we say with John Katsimatidis, when we do on, you know, grateful to be on his programs, we talk about what? Opening people's minds so that they can learn so much more and maybe take a break from the hectic nature of what we see in this world today. Absolutely. So I like 
Well have it said. as a positive. Well said on all. Uh, let me ask you about this story a couple of days ago from SpaceNews.com. Headline, Space Force opens the door to Blue Origin with a new cooperative agreement. Apparently, the U.S. Space Systems, uh, Space Systems Command announced on November 18th mm-hmm. that it had signed an agreement with Blue Origin that paves the way for the company's new Glenn rocket to compete for national security launch contracts once it completes the required flight certification. What exactly are these two entities um, partnering on? And then in the amount of in, before we run out of time, I'm wondering if sure. you could speak more broadly about whether you think the future of space travel and space exploration is going to be dominated by the public sector, agencies like NASA, Space Force, or the other international equivalents, or whether it's going to be the private sector, uh, private companies like Blue Origin, like Virgin, like sure. the uh, Jeff Bezos company. What, what do you think? Well, there was a big fight to answer the first part of this. It's interesting. There was a big legal fight between Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk with, of course, SpaceX. So what's happening is there's going to be, and rightfully so. I mean, Bezos has some powerful rockets that he's looking to build, too. And the answer to the rest of the question is, yes, I think this privatized area is going to overtake anything that NASA can do. And not to take thunder away from them. It's that they have the most powerful rocket in the world now albeit they've had some delays. They did it right. As Bill Nelson said, we don't launch any rocket before it's time. And those are not the exact words, but you get the point. So I think you're going to see so much out there in the private area. We're seeing some cooperation now with uh, what the Space Force has got. They have this little X-37 space plane. That's something that NASA has built and some other private contractors. But I think that is going to be the future. And I think if we can all link this up, This moon economy could be a big boon for the Earth, not necessarily right around the corner. But remember, they didn't build those rockets just to go to the moon. Lots of people want to go to Mars. And if your skies are clear, wherever you're listening to the other side of midnight right now, that orangey object that's up in the sky, depending on where you live, that's Mars. And that's the next destination for humans. And it looks like it'll happen probably within the next 10 years or maybe even sooner if some people have their way. Yeah, uh, one of the guys that has been leading and uh, the the charge for going to Mars and maybe colonizing it has been Buzz Aldrin, certainly one of the great oh, pioneers yeah. of the space program sure. in interviews and in things that he's written. And again, even as an advanced-aged octogenarian, the guy seems to have more energy than almost anybody I know. He has been incredibly vocal about... Yeah. Uh, America pursuing Martian travel. And you you seem to be pretty optimistic that we'll see it. I do. And I really think that's a big thing, not just to be positive for the moment, positive for the long haul. Obviously, there's criticisms about anything. Look at the explorers like Columbus. I'm sure there were people that say, yeah, what are you wasting your time going across the ocean? There's nothing out there but sharks, you know, maybe sea monsters. Nobody knew what was there. But simply, and I don't mean to sound overly dramatic, I believe it's distinctly in our DNA to be explorers, Obviously, Stephen Hawking said this in in, in his voice that he had, which wasn't his natural voice. That's simply this. We need to look at getting off this planet for many reasons and hopefully to explore, not conquer, to explore the universe and make life as we know it, uh, maybe even better than we have it today. And I think it'll be done not only by spacecraft, but things like artificial intelligence that would blow our minds. Because guess what? The last thing that Steve Jobs ever said as he passed on to the infinite, and I quote, Wow, wow, oh wow. Imagine what lies beyond this particular world and the things that we can explore.
You know, Steve, when I was a, a child, I was a big fan of uh, professional wrestling. And one of the things that was very frustrating to me is that you would, especially if you didn't have cable, you were limited to uh, essentially only being able to watch pro wrestling for one hour a week, right? So I would spend the whole rest of my week trying to find different ways that I could watch wrestling, right? Uh, yeah. And it was very, very, very difficult. Now, I imagine there are people in our audience that are similarly interested in space. Now, we've mentioned a few places that they could go for more space content. Uh, WABCradio.com slash Dr. Sky. Space.com. Spacenews.com. Axios does an interesting space newsletter. You mentioned NASA TV. But if somebody is just addicted to this stuff, where's uh, another good resource that they can go for feeding their space addiction? Well, that's a great question. Here's one that's up at our Dr. Sky blog and our podcast, and that is go to heavens-above.com. And here's another great one as we close. Spaceweather.com. They report the news about more of things that people want to see in the sky. And it's always a pleasure, Frank. Happy Thanksgiving to you and the listeners. And happy birthday to little Carmine. Thank you, Steve. We'll talk again soon. It is always a treat. Uh, check out the Dr. Sky blog, KTAR.com. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. We were talking uh, on the eve, or actually the at, right after the first day of the World Cup, about the about Qatar, and we're going to get into a little bit about the history of Qatar in just a minute, and some of the politics of the World Cup because this year is pretty interesting. It's really just a fascinating thing to watch. But a couple of things strike me about Qatar. At least that's the way I pronounced it. I, and that's the way I've always pronounced it. But about 10 years ago, you know, it's it's funny. It's like the I couldn't care less versus I could care less debate. About 10 years ago, there was a pushback to the way I pronounce it. And there's a way, there's a lot of things that I pronounce that people don't like. So it's not unusual for the pronunciation that I give something to be what scholars consider the wrong one. And all of a sudden we heard, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, you don't. It's not pronounced Qatar. It's pronounced Qatar. Qatar. Now, it makes no sense, right? The, for, okay, but we'll get to the pronunciation in a second. The country is spelled Q-A-T-A-R. Can we start with that? Okay. Where is the U? What do you learn about the letter Q your entire scholastic existence? Where do these guys get off starting a word with a Q and then not including a U after it? Q-A-T-A-R? Come on. So 
let's talk about the pronunciation of Qatar. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment and give us your preferred pronunciation. So if you go to Google, the answer is very simple. If you go to Google and say Qatar pronunciation, this is what a very lovely, polite-sounding computer tells you. Qatar. Qatar. My way. And sooner or later, if you're going to watch the World Cup, the moment will arrive for everyone, or at least everyone who doesn't speak Arabic, but hopes to discuss the World Cup, about how to pronounce the name of this country without sounding like a Frank Morano-esque idiot. What happens when conversational circumstance forces us to utter the word Qatar in public? Is it Qatar, like guitar, the musical instrument, or Qatar? Like the British pronunciation of Qatar, uh, a Fleming uh, sore throat, uh, Qatar. What about the Qatar. business? There you go. What about the business executives who go on and on about how you are one hundred percent wrong and should be saying cutter, like gutter, or something that more approximates Qatar? Qatar. Um, why does everyone on television? seem to have a different answer. Can you trust these random instructional YouTube videos? Is there a way to say it without adding, or however you pronounce it, which is what I generally tend to do? Why hasn't FIFA issued a formal directive? It has been 12 years, after all, since soccer's governing body started all this by awarding the sport's biggest championship to this tiny beer-banning nation... But while a four-page phonetic guide created for journalists traveling to Qatar, or however you pronounce it, does offer a degree of linguistic relief, offering step-by-step pronunciations of handy phrases like help and I was robbed. I'm not joking. This is the guide that they gave to journalists. How to pronounce in different languages help, I was robbed. Uh, It's silent this little guide that was handed out to all the journalists on the name of the place where you might need to say them. So New York Times did an article about this a day or two ago. And let's stipulate that the problem is not willful ignorance like I do with certain words, like maple syrup, for instance, or cultural arrogance like I also do with uh, brookaline, for instance. But that the Arabic pronunciation of Qatar in Arabic script is very different from the English one. So if you're an English speaker, you're probably saying it incorrectly, but only in the sense that your pronunciation of Paris or Chile would be considered wrong from the point of view of a Parisian or Chilean. Which means that the real question is, what sort of wrong is right? Here is Hassan al-Thawadi the Secretary General of Qatar's World Cup organization, speaking to the New York Times about the Qatar pronunciation. Uh, the complications are this. So most people in in in, uh, in Qatar would say Qatar. Qatar. Uh, and most Arabic Qatar. Qatar. So the proper, proper way of pronouncing it is Qatar. The colloquial of pronouncing it is Qatar. Qatar? Qatar? You know, he sounded a lot better than the way that I'm saying. Let me hear that one more time. Let me hear his whole shtick. So we got Qatar, Gitta, 
Right? Those are the two. Let me hear his way again. Oh, okay. The complications are this. So most people in 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 Qatar uh, would say Qatar. 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 Uh, and most Gata. Arab would say. So the proper proper way of pronouncing it is Qatar. The Gata. colloquial of pronouncing it is Qatar. 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 Um, well, now you know. Right? 800-848-9222. Neil Buth is the chief communications officer for the United States Soccer Federation. He said there's no real guidance. Um, the United States, their team, our team, has slowly trickled into the country with the name the players wish they could pronounce. They say it's definitely been a debate. And online, it absolutely is a huge debate. There's a Qatari known as Mr. Q who has posted a series of videos for visitors, including one that begins, quote, I've gone ahead and noticed that a lot of foreigners are teaching foreigners how to pronounce Qatar. He then shows a few clips of people saying Qatar in various painful ways on American TV and adds, I respect you, you respect me, we're all respecting each other right now, but no. So um, this Mr. Q person is not at all happy with how people are pronouncing Qatar or Qatar. 800-848-9222. Igor is in Fairfield. Igor, how are you pronouncing it? Uh, greetings, Frank. Hey, listen, I just uh, saw a quick video online, uh, the uh, commercial for Qatar Airways. If you listen to the voiceover in that, figuring it's the national airline of the country, you'd think they'd get the pronunciation right. So right. it's uh, pronounced Qatar. Yeah. And, and if, you, if Qatar. you have one of your guys go online. No, I saw that. Can, I saw that commercial, but apparently that has not put an end to the debate. So are you going with that as your pronunciation? Absolutely. I figured they're going to get it right. That's their brand. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough, Igor. So give me your pronunciation again and the airline's pronunciation again. Qatar? Qatar. 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 Emphasis on the Qatar. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm, uh, I still like guitar. I really do. Uh, you know, maybe it's because I never really learned to play the guitar, but I've always respected a lot of guitarists like the Frank Diaz's of the world. But um, I don't know. People, this has not helped. That phone call from Igor, that commercial from the airline, has not helped alleviate the general confusion among visitors. People were saying, Cutter. When uh, the team got there, the United States team, and then they had many conversations with individuals and with people in the Federation, and they said it wasn't correct. They said, don't say Cutter. Jenny Taft, a sideline reporter for Fox Sports, which is broadcasting the World Cup here in the United States, said the network made a command decision. By the way, I will tell you that um, the Red Apple Audio Network, the Red Apple Podcast Network, The uh, WABC Radio, our home base, WCBM in Baltimore, KBYR in Anchorage, the Nevada Talk Network. As far as I'm aware, WUCT in uh, in uh, Nashville, as far as I'm aware, I have gotten no guidance from the Red Apple Audio Network as to how we should be instructed to say Qatar. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to keep pronouncing it. At my discretion. See, that's what I do. When, unless I've been given a specific directive on how to pronounce something, I stick with my own interpretation, right? Qatar. Qatar. 
Qatar. Where's that from, Mad Place? That is the English version. It was just a slowed down. Okay. All right. Okay. So Qatar. Uh, according to Jenny Taft from Fox Sports, she said as to the direction they've gotten, I don't know who made the call, but we're going with Qatar. They're going with the Murano-esque pronunciation. I'm not sure why, but that was the decision made. And it is unique, right? Like I probably was saying Qatar leading up to this, but Qatar it is. I guess probably the more recognizable way the country is pronounced. Walker Zimmerman, a defender for the U.S. team, said that was what he planned to do. He said, I say Qatar. There you go. All right. Um, 800-848-9222. What pronunciation is that? That's the Arabic. Give it to me again. Qatar. Qatar. Um, If you want to make a case for your pronunciation, you can. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on at this tournament. Let's talk a little bit about Qatar as a country, okay? We covered... What what day is this? Does anybody know what day it is? Wednesday? Okay. We covered on Monday the controversies involving beer and human rights and so forth. The stench of FIFA corruption, which smells worse than one of Little Carmine's diapers. And we've covered the human rights abuses and everything else. How did we get here? Well, 100 years ago, Qatar was a sparsely populated British protectorate. Then, after discovering oil in 1939, oh boy, oh boy, did people move in there quickly. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Can you say Alaska Gold Rush? Well, you know how they have the, the 49ers in football, in American football, which was invented on Thanksgiving, by the way, which is why there's always an American football game on Thanksgiving. We'll talk about that when we do the history of Thanksgiving tomorrow. But you know why they call them the 49ers? Because in 1849, that's when they discovered gold in California, unless I'm misremembering my history, but I don't think I am. And you had all these people moving out there, and they called them 49ers. In Qatar, they should really call their soccer team the 39ers because once they discovered oil there, boom, uh, the world changed not only for the Middle East but for the global energy economy. And one of the, they discovered in 1960, one of the Earth's largest natural gas reserves. Now picture that. You now not only have an incredible oil supply, but you have an incredible natural gas supply. That is two ways to get very rich. And it transformed this tiny little country that nobody cared about into an incredibly wealthy nation. By the turn of the century... Qatar was a major player in global politics because of the natural gas and because of the oil. But a desire for more prestige and clout led the country, much like its Gulf neighbors, to a potent source, soccer. And Qataris acquired the, a French soccer team and they launched Be In Sports. Big moves that shook up Europe, but the crown jewel was the World Cup. And Qatar was named the host 12 years ago. This was a stunning accusation. It's still stunning because Qatar shouldn't even have a soccer team that qualifies for the World Cup. And I believe this was a result of bribery. 18 members of FIFA's 24-person executive committee have since been implicated in or investigated for illicit activity. And the global governing body's reputation has been damaged. But um, we've talked about the human rights record. It's dismal. 
we've talked about the beer ban. We've talked about the lack of press freedom. By the way, you want to know where Qatar ranks in terms of press freedom? They've ranked 180 countries. Qatar is 119, okay, out of 180. And um, you have seen now the announcement that seven European teams announced yesterday that their captains will no longer wear rainbow one love armbands after FIFA said players would be sanctioned. Understand what I'm saying? The captains of these football teams say, look, we're going to play in the, and when I say football in this circumstance, I mean soccer. So I'll just say soccer. The captains of these soccer teams essentially said, look, we believe in gay rights. We think it's terrible that we're playing this game or this tournament in a country where homosexuality is a crime. So to make our little statement to the world, we're putting on a rainbow armband. That's all they're doing. They're not taking a knee. They're not refusing to play. They're not going out after the game and holding press conferences. They're not engaging in any homosexual activity during the game, thank goodness. They're just wearing a little armband. That's it. And FIFA said, if you do that, you're going to be sanctioned. You get, I forget what they call it. A, I don't know if it's a yellow card, but they give you some sort of a penalty during the game if you have one of these rainbow armbands. Um, 54% say, according to a Seton Hall University poll, that FIFA should not have awarded the World Cup to Qatar. And here we are. Here, one of the more interesting controversies involves not just Qatar, but Iran. I don't know if you heard about this, but um, the Iranian soccer team, who I think the United States might be playing on Thursday, the Iranian soccer team was standing for the national anthem. And usually what you'd expect them to do when they, right before they played England, is you'd expect them to sing along with the national anthem. The Iranian team did not do that. They sta- they stood there silently. And people have interpreted that as a show of solidarity with the protesters back home. The players stood silent as the Iranian national anthem played on the field. And the Iranians subsequently lost the game. I have to tell you, that is an incredibly brave thing for these Iranian players to do because Iran is not a country that is exactly known for giving people that protest their national anthem Nike contracts like Colin Kaepernick gets. You protest the national anthem in Iran, they actually take that pretty seriously. Okay, they not not seriously is not the word. They're not exactly a country that encourages dissent. Those mullahs they're not exactly the most understanding group of people. They're not the agree-to-disagree type. And yet, these Iranians stood there silently, and I gave them a lot of credit for that. Um, Simon Chadwick, professor of sports and geopolitical economy at the Schema Business School, and I think also part of the uh, namesake of uh, the Chadwick's restaurant family in uh, Brooklyn, spoke to France 24 News about these Iranian soccer players not singing the national anthem. That is a really bold gesture because there have been instances in the past when Iranian players have made um, some form of protest, uh, either statements or similar kinds of silence, and and when they've got back, they have been arrested and and, uh, in many cases detained. 
So I give these Iranians a great deal of credit, a great deal of credit. And uh, I think uh, they are worthy of recognition and our respect. So the politics of the World Cup are very interesting. I think the economy of the World Cup is uh, incredibly interesting. And all these controversies surrounding the World Cup, I think, are remarkably interesting. I'm curious how you view uh, all this. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Iran is at play. You have um, Qatar itself that's at play. And a number of other folks who are, are you know, in- interested in commenting on what's going on. But when national when Iran's national anthem rang out, and these players sat there silently. I thought that was a tremendous act of bravery. And what's even more interesting is that many Iran Iranian fans that were in the stadium booed the national anthem. Can you imagine that? And some waved banners with the rallying cry of the protesters. Women, life, freedom. And the team faced criticism before the tournament for attending a ceremony in Tehran alongside the president of Iran, Ebrahim Raisi. So they're getting it from all sides. I give them a lot of credit. I give them a lot of credit because the Iranian authorities have criticized publicly and in some cases even arrested celebrities who have backed the protests. So this is not a consequence-free action that the Iranian uh, soccer team took. I don't, I don't know how many of you watch Ted Lasso, but it's a show that I've really come to respect. But there's one episode where the the team, AFC Richmond, engages in a protest on that show. And I think that, um, you know, okay, you protest in England, what's going to happen? Maybe the boss is upset. But you're at risk in Iran of legitimately being arrested. So uh, I give all the, these captains who are going to wear the one love armband. I give them credit. I say shame on FIFA for threatening to uh, sanction these players. And uh, I think that um, these Iranian players are certainly worthy of our respect. Qatari leaders have decried the scrutiny from people like me and people much more important than me because the Qatari kingdom probably doesn't know who I am, but certainly others that have spoken out about this, they have much larger platforms than I do. And they don't feel that we're being fair. They say that the scrutiny that the kingdom of Qatar is getting is unprecedented and unfair. Because there's certainly been controversial hosts of the World Cup before. Russia in 2018, Argentina uh, in 1978, Mussolini's Italy in 1934. But while activists and soccer stars have been protesting Qatar, world leaders generally have not. The Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and the Saudis and the Qataris, they don't have the best relationship in the world. They do and they don't. They're both uh, Sunni Muslims and they're both basically theocracies. 
But, it, you know, it's kind of a big brother, little brother relationship. I don't want to oversimplify the very complex geopolitics of the Middle East, but that's the best way that I could uh, think of it. Meaning the big brother, Saudi Arabia, feels the need to occasionally beat up on their little brother, Qatar. But when it comes to making money, selling oil or uh, sponsoring terrorism with a wink and a nod, they're very much on the same page. But the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, donned a scarf in Qatar's colors as he attended the opening, uh, the opening ceremony. Now, that's a big deal. This five years ago, Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia launched a blockade of Qatar, which just ended last year. And now he's wearing their colors of the very same country that he blockaded. The leaders of Turkey and Egypt, they shared a handshake during the uh, opening ceremony with uh, the, uh, the Qatari emir. The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, who can't denounce and and uh, ridicule publicly Russia fast enough, he had no problem attending the uh, U.S. versus Wales match in Qatar because, of course, Qatar is a key U.S. partner and hosts a major U.S. airbase. And it's funny. I, once again, I want to encourage you, and I can't stress this enough, I am not a fan of Hillary Clinton nor Condoleezza Rice. I think one of the things that first attracted me to Donald Trump was on foreign policy and on trade, he was willing to publicly repudiate the things that came out of the Bush and Clinton administrations and things that uh, people like Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice have been pushing for so long. But one of the points that they both made, and they're right about this, in that interview with Jon Stewart, it's on my Facebook page, you could watch it, facebook.com slash fan. One of the points they both made is that the United States has principles, but we also have interests. And that's my phraseology, not theirs. If uh, you can do something for the United States, then all of a sudden, maybe they won't have as much of a problem with you if you're not willing to do something for or with the United States. But billions of people, as we explained the other day, are expected to tune in during the World Cup. Qatar is going to be at the center of global attention for the next few weeks for events on the field and events off. And my fervent hope is that Qatar comes out of this, instead of using this as a reputation-building exercise, which is what they'd hoped, my hope is that there's a whole new generation of Americans that is aware of how bad a country Qatar is in terms of human rights and uh, possibly even worse than human rights in terms of banning beer. All right, uh, we're going to talk about college education and alternatives to college in just a moment. I'm very excited to talk with Michael Gibson. He had a phenomenal op-ed in the New York Post, and this is uh, something that he's been very vocal on for some time. Essentially, the gist of his column was, let kids go to work instead of school. Uh, Mike Porcelli, when he was on our show a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago maybe, he made a similar point. And uh, Michael Gibson has been putting his money and other people's money where his mouth is. We're going to get into it with him straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Cooper, it was 91 years ago yesterday that the film, the 1931 film Frankenstein with Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster, based on the Mary Shelley novel, was uh, released and created cinema history. And uh, it has certainly withstood the test of time uh, because as tastes change, as tastes evolve, that's still just as good today as it was back in 1931. One of the uh, things that has been changing is the view of college in America. About 90 years ago, 100 years ago, it was a pretty unusual thing to go to college. Uh, These days, it seems like it could be a pretty unusual thing not to go to college. Is that a wise... Is that a wise thing? We've certainly covered this issue at length with uh, our friend Mike Porcelli, who's a big advocate of uh, trade education. And Michael Gibson is the co-founder of the 1517 Fund, which mainly invests in people without college degrees. He is also the author of Paper Belt on Fire, How Renegade Investors Sparked a Revolt Against the University. Michael, thanks for staying up late with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Frank. Oh, sure thing. Hey, what's the fifteen seventeen fund? Yeah, that was a, a, a name we gave ourselves as a geeky reference of all things to the the year Martin Luther nailed his ninety five theses to a church door. And what the reference is is an analogy. We thought the university system was uh, today's university system was, you know, similar to the corrupt Catholic Church of the 16th century. So what was going on? The church was, uh, you know, selling these things called indulgences. It was this piece of paper. If you paid the church money, they basically said, you're absolved of your sins and maybe your relatives too. Uh, and then you could keep on sinning and then pay again and, 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 and get absolved again. Um, so, you know, what we wanted to say was that the modern university is the same corrupt institution. There's this piece of paper that they sell at great cost. It's called a diploma. If you don't have one, you go to hell. And so we named ourselves 1517 as a way of saying we don't believe in indulgences. I love it. I love it. I think that's great. Hey, uh, just so folks are underwear, uh, are, are, are aware, excuse me, of what exactly is going on in the world today in terms of higher education, at ballpark, how many American adults, what percentage, ballpark, have a college degree? Oh, uh, well, 
I think it's you know less than a third. Less than um, a third. Yeah. Um, you know, at, at, at any given time, there's somewhere between 18, 20 million students in college. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's, it's a minority. You know, most people don't have a college degree. They pursue different kinds of careers that don't require that. Um, but like you said in the intro, you know, the, the overwhelming sense is that, um, if you don't have one, you have a dunce cap uh, right. attached to your head for well, the so, rest of your life. So, well, I guess one, one of my questions is: Have the how much has the number of people attending college gone up since, say, World War II? It seems like post World War II, when you had all these GIs coming back to America and getting the opportunity to go to college for free, that's really when people, at least men, young men, started to go to college en masse. I'm wondering, right. have we seen the number of people enrolling in colleges go up significantly since 1946? Yeah, both on two levels. I mean, just, I mean, the bare fact that there are more people alive now than in the past, certainly there's a greater number, but proportionally to the number of Americans has increased. It, it, it has, you know, sort of leveled out, though. Um, you know, it increased rapidly from 65 to call it like 1990 and 2000. But, you know, we sort of hit the, the high water mark on, on the number of people going as a proportion of the whole population. Um, you know, the same is true of, of graduation rates and so on at the high school level. Um, you know, we seem to have hit some kind of limit and uh, in, in we haven't improved. Um, but, yeah, it does seem to be the case that, you know, and with the GI Bill, that led to a lot of people to to, to go to college. Uh, there's this idea that the workforce became more complicated. You know, the labor market required jobs that required, uh, you know, high levels of skill and cognitive ability. And so people thought that in order to succeed in life, you definitely needed a college degree. Um, and, and they followed that incentive. But the, the, the real question is, like, how come more people don't? You know, so if there is this college wage mm-hmm. premium, uh, you know, that, that sets a big jackpot prize at the end of that path. Um, but, you know, we do, you'd think that if that's the case, we'd see more and more people going, and, but they choose not to. And there are some research papers that show, you know, even in, I guess there was a program in Michigan where they were offering free college to certain people, and it was like only women were enrolling, men were choosing not to go. So, you know, even though, even though the, the prize is there, uh, you know, that we, we have hit a limit. You had a terrific op-ed in the New York Post over the weekend called The College Debt Solution, Let Kids Go to Work Instead of School. So you mentioned how the number of students enrolling in college might have uh, leveled off uh, over the last few years. One thing that has absolutely not leveled off is the level of college tuition. It seems to be uh, whether the economy is doing well, whether it's doing poorly, uh, the tuition seems to only go one way. What, yep. what does what do these increasing tuition costs do to someone that has to borrow money in order to fund a an education at a private college? Yeah, yeah. When I looked at the numbers, I was astonished because it was like from mid seventies to today, it's up, you know, over four hundred percent in in real terms. So not counting inflation, um, you know, what are you getting in return for that? Is is an open question. Um, you know, people, when they, they point to why the increasing cost, they don't necessarily say, oh, it's because the teaching is better. It's always something like, uh, well, for one thing, there are all these additional administrators. Um, there are, you know, dorm rooms look like hotels now. The library has Starbucks, all that kind of stuff, and it adds up. 
But like you pointed out, you know, if you are, if we do see this as a way to attain the American dream, then there are a lot of people who are taking out quite substantial loans in order to pay these things off and, uh, or, or to, to attend, and then they spend the rest of their life paying it off. And, and, and that debt burden can be quite, quite a burden. Um, you know, the average, the average seems pretty low, depending on public, private, but in total, there's $1.7 trillion of student debt outstanding. Um, that's a political issue. No one uh, wants to, you know, everyone recognizes people have different answers to it. Um, I think that's why, you know, Joe Biden and, and his administration, they've been working to try to um, erase some portion of that debt, just cancel it out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no one has a good answer for how to control the rising costs. So everyone agrees, okay, $1.7 trillion, that's bad. Uh, then there's the second uh, problem, which is like not everyone, you know, seems to be getting the skills that are rewarded in the market, in the labor market. And then the last thing is that the cost keeps going up. So, uh, you know, everyone agrees these are the problems, but there are different ways of solving it. You know, maybe we cancel it out, maybe we pay it off. But you know, the one thing I noticed is that no one seems to be blaming the universities mm-hmm. well, uh, because so, they, they, they seem to be the main culprit for driving the, the rising costs. All right. So what are, let's say you don't want to send your, your child to a university where they're going to have to borrow money and be saddled with, in some cases, mm-hmm. decades of debt to spend uh, $53,000 a year on tuition. And that's a conservative estimate. What are the alternatives for a young person that wants a vibrant future? Is the choice uh, college education or crack addiction? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, yeah, where to begin on this? I, look, I, I, I think it, everyone wants to focus on that college wage premium, meaning uh, college graduates will earn on average something like 60, 70 percent more than someone who just has a college uh, high school degree. Um, and then the standard story is that, um, you know, the reason they're paid more is that they have these skills that they learned in college and now they're, th- those skills are rewarded. But, you so, know, so why, I, is that like, a, why is that a flawed argument? I, yeah. So anecdotally, I think we can all see how this is flawed. Number one would be, I mean, we why, either for yourself, me or people we know, hardly anyone pursues a career that's related to what they studied in college. Um, you know, I studied philosophy. I, I, I now work on the investment <laughs> in venture capital. It does not bear a strong resemblance to what I studied in school. And I think there are other examples like that out there. So that's kind of funny. Um, that makes you scratch your head. Then there might be something like this, is that, you know, I've forgotten a lot of what I've studied. I studied French for a long time in, in high school and college. Um, and, I, and I don't remember it now. So if somehow I learned skills in college and I forgot them, how am I being rewarded in the marketplace? Um, that doesn't make sense either, because if I've forgotten, that should be the same thing as failing. So how is you know, failing different from forgetting? Um, you know, the counter argument is to say, oh, well, you don't learn what to think in college. You learn how to think. Um, but when you drill down into that research, too, there's just tremendous amount. There's 90 years of research in the psychology of education that shows that, you know, schools and colleges aren't t- teaching people how to think. You know, they present them with tests where it's like, oh, you learn this in one domain. Can you apply it in a new domain? And people consistently fail on that or they don't show improvement. Mm. Um, so, so it's like the, there's no evidence that college is actually imparting. You know, the main thing about it is, is that it's imparting skills. So what else is going on? Well, there's a whole body of economics research called 
the signaling theory of education. And what this is about is like, it's like, okay, education is not about obtaining skills uh, that are rewarded. Instead, it's about showing the labor market that you're a certain type of person. And what does that mean? Well, it's the difference between like a gem appraiser and someone who actually cuts a rock and, you know, pulls the diamond out. You know, the, the signaling theory says, oh, college is the appraiser. You just hand them a gem and they're like, okay, this one's good. And then the, the alternative theory would be that, oh, no, you know, they actually polish and, and cut the gem and, and improve its value. But, the, you know, so to see the difference is like, okay, you worked hard, you got in the school, you were already, you know, you showed that you were intelligent, intelligent and then, you know, the four years uh, to get your degree represented this four-year project where you, you followed orders, you took assignments, you got them done. Um, and so that tells the labor market that you are a good person to hire. It has nothing to do with the content of what you learned. So once you take that seriously, okay, so let's get back to what I do for a living. You know, in 2010, I, I worked for Peter Thiel. He's the PayPal co-founder, first investor, Facebook, Silicon Valley all-star. And he was looking at these arguments and he was thinking, wow, yeah, you know, I, I backed people who don't have college degrees. Uh, so if the substance is there, but the credentials not, you know, let's let's support that. So 2010 started this program. We gave out grants to people. There were two noteworthy conditions. Um, one of them was that uh, you had to be 19 and under to apply for the grant. And then the next one was that you couldn't be in school to get it. So it was $100,000 over two years. And we just saw incredible things come out of that program. Um, you know, probably the most notable was we discovered this young man, Vitalik Buterin. He's the creator of Ethereum, helped him launch that mm. in 2013. There's another young man, Dylan Field, made news recently. We helped him launch a company called Figma in 2012 that was recently bought by Adobe for $20 billion. Um, so we, you know, those are some high-flying examples, but we also just saw other people establish their careers uh, without degrees, um, mainly in tech. And so that's what, sort of what got me thinking about this broader case that, okay, is there some way to really help people get the skills they need um, that, that, in fact, are rewarded in the marketplace uh, or to send that signal that college seems to be sending? Uh, is there a way to short-circuit that? And in, in, in tech, it's easier because it's like, you know, like if you're a computer engineer, either you have the skills to build something or you don't. Um, you know, there's a site called uh, GitHub. People upload their code, their peers vote on it, and that's even better than a resume. So when I saw that, I, that's what really turned me back to looking at, at the trades and, and, and other programs like the one in Switzerland I mentioned in my op-ed. They have an apprenticeship program that's fantastic. Seventy percent of all teens are in it. Um, the, you know, they spend their week in class in part, but also working and, and then, you know, working with industry mentors And there, uh, a substantial number of people are able to launch their careers without uh, a college degree. Um, and, and these are in jobs that aren't, you know, it's the trades, but manufacturing, but also banking, you know, and retail and other things. Um, so, uh, in the United States, we've just gone off the wrong track. I think there was this misguided ideal that, uh, you know, college was imparting skills and then that it was this vehicle for the American dream. And, and, and now our government has just hitched its wagon to that and we're, you know, heading off a cliff. Mm -hmm.
Let so me, uh, I think a couple it, of things, Michael, and if people just, you yeah. know, we're talking with Michael Gibson. He is the co-founder of the 1517 Fund, which uh, mainly invests in people without college degrees. Also the author of uh, Paper Belt on Fire, How Renegade Investors Sparked a Revolt Against the University. Uh, by the way, I'm going to link uh, to Michael's column in the New York Post on my Facebook page. So if you haven't read it yet, I definitely recommend you check it out, uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Um, one, let me... Um, let me just note that uh, the owner of our radio station, John Katsimatidis, he's mm-hmm. the most successful person I know. He's a billionaire, self-made. He doesn't have a college degree, number one. And the, yeah. the smartest person on uh, our radio station in New York is is Curtis Lewa. He never even he never went to college either. Wow. So um, the, yeah. I I think it is very very possible to be have a robust educational portfolio and uh, to have an incredible professional level of achievement without having a college degree. Let me yeah absolutely. Let me share with you an email I just got from a listener. She writes, it's nauseating to me to hear educated, privileged a-holes, I guess she's talking about you and me, talking about how education is unimportant. Now, you're not saying education's unimportant, no, are you? No, not at all. I'm just saying that our schools aren't doing what they say they are. <laughs> um, I, look, I, 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 I said I studied philosophy. I think, it's, I, I think it's a wonderful subject. I think wrestling with these, you know, fundamental questions of life or, or something that everyone should do. Um, but our schools aren't doing it. You know, they claim they are, and then colleges are, are charging quite a fortune. So I think if someone does want to, you know, study that in college, then they have a fork in the road where, uh, if they have to take on debt in order to do it, then they're going to have to be prepared to take a safe but well-paying job to, to cover that debt on the other side. And that may quash their passions and dreams to do something else. So, um, let's talk- so I, and, and then here's the other last point on that, is that who says that uh, education is the same thing as school? I mean, school is just some technique of educating people in a building. Um, I know so many people who have continued to learn when they're out of school, including myself, and have enriched their minds and ennobled their souls in ways that no teacher ever did for them. So the idea that you can only learn in one place and only during one point in your life is just absurd to me. So let's talk about the issue of debt forgiveness. You mention, uh, or you at least have a photo in your piece, of protesters holding up signs that highlight the point that Wall Street was bailed out. Now, if Wall Street got bailed out, why shouldn't students who are thinking that they're doing the right thing for themselves and for society, why shouldn't they also be entitled to a bailout? Well, yeah, it's complicated. In, in some sense, I do feel for people in the past if they were bilked. Um, you know, if there was fraudulent advertising, you know, a, there are a lot of bad uh, colleges out there, both nonprofit and for profit, where, you know, maybe the bill of goods aren't exactly what you know, they were selling. And so people, you know, attended these programs, they earned degrees, and, and, and now they're not making the money that they thought they would. Um, you know, I think we need to hold the real culprit accountable, the universities mm-hmm. on this. And then and then we could get into the legal details. There could be the case that, okay, maybe there's a strange law in the United States where, and, and I think this was in the early 2000s, where the government decided that you could no longer discharge your student debt in bankruptcy. Um, I think, you know, we could change that law that, 
you know, turns it back to the individual. If things aren't going well and they show that they're not going to be able to pay things off, then maybe they could discharge the debt in bankruptcy. But that would be a case-by-case thing. I don't think, you know, to wipe out a, a whole swath of debt and then have the rest of the country pay for it. I mean, it just seems massively unfair to ask someone who, you know, paid off the, you know, worked day and night so that they could pay off their child's college tuition. Uh, now that person has to foot the bill for someone who, who studied basket weaving right. or, you know, right. Lady Gaga uh, hey, whatever. Um, I, I have to run, Michael. One question yeah. I want to end with is you talk about the national apprenticeship program that Switzerland offers. Yeah. Can you give us a primer on what that is and how the United States might be able to emulate that? Yeah, so the, Switzerland is just in, in Germany in part and in, in, in Austria as well. Um, you know, they've just done a really great job of building out a uh, a, a solid transition for teens to move from school to the workforce. And they make no bones about where the best way to learn skills, you know, the place to learn is, and it's in the workplace. Um, so they have a national program. The government uh, does disperse money to support it. Uh, there is some uh, institutional aspect to it where the, the, you know, involving government oversight of the companies that hire these apprentices and so on. But as I said, yeah, that just 70 percent of these of Swiss teens are a part of it. And, and many launch uh, their careers without college degrees. What does that mean? It means that they don't have an underclass of people in their 20s who are de- in debt servitude and, you know, wishing their life had taken a different course. And that, that just really impressed me. I think, uh, you know, the United States would do well to try to emulate that system. Maybe we can't just copy and paste. But uh, I just hate the way the trades Absolutely. are denigrated in our country. Uh, yeah, and, no, that is terrific. Michael, you got to come back in the future. I think this is a great okay. column. I'll uh, look forward to checking out. Um, well, thanks for book. having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Billy Squire, The Stroke. 
you ever want to uh, know what kind of music we're playing, just join our Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. And if you go to uh, my Facebook page, not only will you be able to read Michael's article, which we were just talking about, at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan, but I posted an image of uh, a piece of mail that I got after the show yesterday. Um, do you remember on Veterans Day we had on Admiral Kyle Kozad? He is the... Um, the head of the uh, National Aviation Museum Foundation, retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral. He was the former chief of naval education and training. He was the commander of the Joint Task Force at Guantanamo. Not only did he, he sent me a very beautiful handwritten note and a very kind handwritten note, which is not that unusual. I, I'd say eight out of ten guests um, that I have on the program, they'll send me an email saying, hey, thanks for having on. I'd say one out of ten sends me a handwritten note. But I got to tell you, he did something that I don't think any guest has done, at least uh, the only one, not since I've been here, I don't think, is he sent me a challenge coin. And I collect challenge coins. He sent me a challenge coin, a president's coin, of the uh, Navy Aviation Museum, along with a very kind note. And I was really moved. And it was really nice. And uh, I'm encouraging all the guests to send me challenge coins in the future. So if you want to see that coin... You can uh, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. One of the other things that I posted on there yesterday, I tell you, you join my Facebook page, just the whole world opens up. It's like a never-ending radio show. One of the other things I posted on there yesterday is I recently was on uh, my friend Johnny Potenza's cable TV show. We had a good time, and you could see our whole interview on there. But it's worth watching the whole show because Johnny is just such a character. Picture Curtis Lewa only with more of a passion for drumming, shorter, no beret, and slightly less refined. And then maybe you have some idea of uh, Johnny Potenza. He's a real character. I mean, his his comedy is just, it's very unique. Let me put it that way. Grandpa's <laughs> was uh, the movie from the TV show The Monsters years ago. Okay. Al Lewis, his right. grandpa, but he almost yeah. opened up his own comedy club. Okay. But there was one in Staten Island, and there was one in the city, but they were great. And they were small. But they had all top line people in it. Yep. Dice Clay played there. Uh-huh. Everybody played there. Ray Romano. Yep. You know? Of course. So it was a good show, and I thought he did a great job interviewing me, and I give him a lot of credit for continuing to do this show. But it was very funny. The act that came on after me, he was introducing him. He was a comedian. And, um, and this is not in the show. And I, if Johnny's listening, he's not going to be happy that I'm sharing this. But Johnny finished interviewing me and then threw to this comic. And I was in a hurry. I had to get here. So I was in kind of a hurry to leave. So um, he must have done six takes throwing to this comic. Not interviewing him. Just throwing to him because he kept getting this guy's name wrong. And I thought it was the funniest part of the show. I wish Johnny would have left that in there. But if you watch the show, uh, you could tell tell me and tell Johnny how you think the editing went. And you could listen to the interview that I did with Johnny Potenza. It's at uh, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Coming up next hour, we'll talk inventions and music. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morning, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It is Thanksgiving Eve. For wrestling fans, this always used to be the day that uh, we would have the Survivor Series. Initially, it was on Thanksgiving, but I guess they didn't want to celebrate, and I guess they didn't want to compete with all those uh, football games. Uh, so now, then it was Thanksgiving Eve, but it is no longer on Thanksgiving Eve. I think it should be. If I were, if they put me in charge of the WWE for a day, I would absolutely put it back on, uh, you know, on Thanksgiving. Uh, Matt Blaze, what's your deal? Do you know when when uh, Survivor Series is this it's year? Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, this Saturday. Saturday. Okay. And uh, yeah. do they have the Survivor Series format? Look at the teams and everything. Yeah, there's some of that I like still. That. Okay. Like I said, they're calling it now Survivor Series War Games. Is what they're calling. Well, I like it that this because um, War Games was what WCW used to do right. with Fall Brawl. It was kind of their version of Survivor right. Series. So, to the extent that they can um, they can combine the two, I think that's great. All right, all right. Uh, by the way, if you would like just an update on the Qatar pronunciation situ- situation, you remember that fellow Mr. Q that I told you about? Well, this is a little bit of a video that he's posted on the YouTube. So, just to recap, the official pronunciation of my country is Qatar. 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 So Qatar. go ahead and Qatar. close your throat a little bit. Make sure you say ta instead of ta, and you Qatar. get Qatar. And Qatar. locally, we don't say Qatar. We actually replace the ka qaf with a G, so it becomes guitar. Qatar. So almost like guitar. Excellent! No, it's not a guitar. It's guitar. 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 Okay. All right. I like that. I can get into that. That almost is like a... A France-style pronunciation. Qatar. Okay. We're going to look forward to seeing some of the World Cup matches in Qatar. Okay. I can deal with that. All right. But I'd say what I cannot deal with. You know what really grinds my gears? I have had it up to here with Gmail. Gmail is, I know there's a lot going for it. You can search things easily. You can attach things. You never run out of space. It's, It's got a lot going for it. You can... Do all sorts of things. It goes along with all sorts of other things that you can do. It's very user-friendly in some respects. You know, the thing with Gmail, I find every day, because by the time I wake up, I have 150, 200 emails to get to in the afternoon. And I I spend, the no, no exaggeration, I spend the whole day going through these emails. By the way, if you want to add to that email pile, you can email me, frank.moreno. At WABCRadio.com, Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O, at WABCRadio.com. And I work my way through all these emails in chronological order. And you would be amazed at how much time this takes. Maybe you wouldn't because I try and spend, you know, an appropriate amount of time on each email. But even if I just glance at the email and if it's a news article, quick headline, you know, and I just move on to the next one, that's still three, four seconds. So picture doing that multiplied by hundreds. So I I do all sorts of things to keep it interesting. So what I do is every 10 items that I go through on my work email, I will then check one from my personal email. And I'll I'll knock off a show item. So I'll do 10, 10, 10 work emails, one personal email, then eh, make sure I have the questions ready for the $1,000 minute. 10 more show emails, then one personal email, then make sure I have the music picked out for the show. Then 10 work emails, one personal email, you know, it goes up, I don't know. So I usually don't get to zero emails until the rest of the world is asleep, till right about now. So 
every morning I feel like this happens, where it says in my inbox that I still have one unread email. How the heck do I have one unread email? Um, I went through them all, one by one, painstakingly. It took me the whole day. How do I have one unread email? And then I, I have to go back, and now it's during the show, right? So this is exactly what I need to be doing is the distraction of looking at emails during the show. And I'm going back. Okay, it's not in emails 1 to 50. Is it in emails uh, 50 through 100? Okay, is it in uh, 101 through 150? And I have to look and look, and where's that non-grade email? Now, sometimes what I do, and this is usually what I, I'd say I end up doing this about 40% of the time, uh, you, there is an option to select all and then mark all as red. I hate doing that because then I feel like I'm missing something. So um, I'm just, I'm done with Gmail. Outlook, it was nice and simple. It was clean. You'd be able to just go through each thing one by one. I miss using Outlook. I have to see if I can just make that transition back to Outlook. We'll see. But that's uh, neither here nor there. Hey, um, one of the things that I would not be doing if I were not on the radio is, and I've said this a hundred times, I don't think I would be on social media. I mean, maybe I would because I would probably be doing something, something in the public eye. And yet, these days you need social media for everything. But I feel like I have to produce a different show every day just for social media. Okay, what are the photos people are going to react to? What are the articles that people are going to react to? What's going to get people commenting? What's going to drive engagement? What's going to, what's going to build synergy with the show? And one of the things that I really – one of the few things that I really enjoy doing on Facebook is putting up open-ended questions, right? What is the best – where's the best slice of pizza you've ever had? Right. Or, well, what is the bet? What's an example of a movie sequel that's better than the original film? Uh, You know, all sorts of things like that. And sometimes I can tell I kind of workshop talk topics on there. I can tell based on how people are responding in the world of Facebook, whether or not this is something that people would respond to on the radio. I got to tell you, I put out a subject three days ago, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm going to tell you what it is, and I'm going to invite you to respond. But in my seemingly always trend towards synchronicity, one of the 9,000 emails that I read today smacked me in the face based on this particular Facebook topic. Here's the topic, and I'm going to ask it to you. You can dial in at 800-848-9222. And I'll invite the guys here in the studio to participate as well. Name something that you wish someone would invent? That's the question. Name something, or what is something, if we want to put it in question form, like a Jeopardy response. What is something that you wish someone would invent? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space, and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. I remember when my brother... Um, I'm significantly older than my brother. So when he was maybe four years old, five years old, and we were driving to Brooklyn to look at the uh, Christmas lights, which was an annual tradition in our house. And, um, you know, I'm significantly older than him. So I was, you know, almost like an adult. And he's, you know, a little kid. And he's doing what all the Morano children do, which is asking a lot of questions. 
And he's asking all about the bridge that we drove over, which was the Verrazano Bridge. And he's asking all sorts of questions about it. Ba, 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 ba. Very smart boy, and he's a very smart adult now. He's a Ph.D., he's a, a scientist, as he'll be the first to remind you if you ever get into an argument with him. And he said, um, why has no one invented a bridge that floats? Now, for all I know, in the ensuing 25 years, maybe someone has invented it. But at the time at least in my brother's four- or five-year-old brain, that had not been invented. And my father or, or my stepmother said to him, well, maybe, I don't even know if they remember this, but they said to him, well, maybe you can invent one. And Nicholas said in response, well, no, I really want God to do it. And we all laughed, and my dad said, that is the ultimate passing of the buck. I'm not asking you to invent anything, but... I'm asking you, what's something that you wish someone would invent? 800-848-9222. I'll read you a couple of these responses. I'll give you one that came to mind for me. And I don't think there's anything like this because I researched it. Maybe there is, but I don't think there is. I have, courtesy of Bridget and Robert Guzzi, New Yorkers turned Floridians, they gave Rachel and I and Carmine a grandfather clock. It's the coolest thing in the world. It's got weights. It makes cool sounds. It's great. What if, ready for this, ready for this, what if there was a grandfather wristwatch, right? Just like a grandfather clock, makes the same sounds, it has the weights, it goes back and forth, but it's on your wrist, on your wrist. How cool would that be, okay? I mean, as far as luxury novelty items go, I think that's phenomenal. Let me know what you think. 800-848-9222. Other people, here are a couple of the other responses. Uh, Gerard says, windshield wipers for all of my home's windows so I can see outside when it snows or rains. Now, that is interesting. Uh, Letitia Romaro writes, robot housekeepers. Meanwhile, I think the Roomba, which is a staple in our household, is is almost a uh, robot housekeeper. But I guess she's talking more like something like Rosie from the Jetsons. Ellen writes... A means by which we can access all of our past memories. Uh, Sonia writes, a robot who can cook and do laundry. Joe writes, one of those flying cars that folds up into a briefcase like George Jetson has. Uh, John writes, flying slash self-driving car, please. Uh, Noemi writes, um, artificial silky hands to stroke the back. And, um, you know, you could tell me what yours is. What do you have, uh, Matt Blaze? Anything? Well, the first thing that came to mind was a time machine. Time machine. Yeah, okay, that, that's that, was, that was the first one. But I, I, I had often thought about Ellen's idea about um, being able to access your memories, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. like to be able to, like a hard drive, and you can actually watch them on a TV screen. Yeah, I like that. Something I like, like that. that. I, I like that a lot. Okay. Well, so anyway, a lot of good responses, and I'm looking forward to hearing some of yours, 800-848-9222. One of the thousands of email newsletters that I get includes a link to something called Quirky.com. Do you know what Quirky.com is? Don't feel bad if you don't because I had never heard of it. And uh, they're not uh, an advertiser or anything along those lines. And uh, it it's apparently... And I spent a lot of time on there, and I got a lot of good ideas for Christmas gifts. It's a website that you submit your idea invention to, and then 
they make it potentially. They make it, and if it gets sold, if people start buying it, they cut you in for a percentage of the, the proceeds. I think this is the neatest thing in the world. It's called, if you want to check it out, quirky.com. So what's your idea? You put it in there. Now, I think a time machine is probably a little more difficult for them to manage. Uh, but I think my idea of a grandfather wristwatch is very practical. I think, well, practical maybe not, but it's very inventable. Um, Ellen's idea for the downloadable memories, that's maybe a little tougher. But Quirky creates products invented by real people like you. You fill out your idea submission uh, for a chance to turn your idea into a real product. And then they sell these products. And it's made by Quirky, invented by real people like you. There's, There's some interesting things on there. And, you know, I'm in a couple of secret Santas. And I am going to buy some of these things on here. For those of you that um, listen to my local commentaries, and if you ever want to hear the podcast of those, just download Frank Morano interviews and more. I am doing a – there's an auction going on right now of gifts that were given to former New York City mayors. Not only do I want some stuff on there, but I am going hog wild in this auction items list to try and buy Christmas gifts for a, c- a couple of other people. Um here are the few things that a few things that are on there. Uh, Air Audio, introducing the Air by Quirky, the go anywhere, listen to anything speaker. It's like a portable speaker you can take anywhere. Align staples where other staplers can't reach. Pivot power, a, a really neat um, outlet, kind of a a breakout box. But I don't know if the, the is the right word. Well, it's like it's like a surge protector, but you can pivot and always have room for your outlets. Something called uh, Pawset, P-A-W-C-E-T, a doggy drinking fountain. Something called Bevel, the only bowl you'll ever need to break. Trek, a charging duffel and backpack in one. You know, it's funny. My friend Vinny years ago, had an idea for something exactly like this. Flatlock, a wallet-sized padlock. So I thought this was really good. Uh, one thing that I am absolutely going to buy on here is something called pluck, which separates eggs in a clean and easy task. So if you have ideas, maybe think about going on this website, quirky.com. Oh, tapology, a microfoam draft beer system. I mean, how neat is that? Um a Hover One Cruise, a remoteless, cruise-controlled, electric skateboard. Thank you very much. That's pretty neat. So I, I, these are all really interesting inventions. So I'm curious if you are going to try and submit any of your inventions to this website and what you'd like to see invented. And then we got Christina Fontanelli joining me in studio in about 10 minutes. 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, yes, Frank, hey, Tom. Uh, a good, when you used to have your house uh, program on, on WABC, mm-hmm. they, uh, there was an idea that I tried to give the guy uh, that ran the program, and I said if there was an air conditioner that could be put on a movable stand on wheels, in the summer you could wheel it over to the window like in an apartment where I live, and when the weather changed, you could just roll it back. Now that it would be attached to the stand, uh, not the window, because it's a hassle getting your air conditioner off when the weather changes. 
this would make it very easy just to pull back. I uh, I had an idea for it, believe it or not. I tried, but I'm not. Uh, I could think of things, but I can't well, so, physically well, put yeah, them together. Uh, Tom, I think I'm a little. I'm, I'm hesitate, hesitant to ask you to repeat this, but I think I'm a little lost. So it's an air conditioner that does what? They that's get put. That gets put on a movable stand. On a movable stand, so you wouldn't right, have with to on use wheels. like a window unit. Oh yeah, on the window to height of the window and. It can go out the window. It I would feel be like that's a thing already. I feel like they have those. Well, I don't. I have no idea on that, but I thought of that a good while back. Wait, hey, Tom, um, I, I, I do think they have those. I think I might have one, actually. And um, unless it's different, unless I'm not grasping exactly what you're describing. But who knows? Maybe it's an idea. 800-848-9222. Chester is in Maryland. Hello, Chester. Good morning, sir. We must think a lot alike. We must indeed. Uh, tell me, yeah. tell me what you got. I, I was. I told my wife about four months ago. How about a pocket watch? That's a grandfather clock. Well, so we are on the same page. I, I can't believe right. no one has invented this. Yes, it's crazy because I, I, they're so elegant. And why wouldn't you not want it for a pocket watch? Because that's elegant too. I think that's five star. You'd buy one, right? Yeah, I'd definitely buy one. Yeah, so would I. And if they went with both our ideas, a wristwatch and a pocket watch, your idea might be a little bit more practical because of the weight that's involved with a grandfather clock, even at a small scale. But I'd buy both, a grandfather wristwatch and a grandfather pocket watch. Thank you, Chester. 800-848-9222. Lynn is in Maryland. Hello, Lynn. Yeah, I'm surprised that your father didn't answer that question by your four-year-old brother that it's already been done. It's called a pontoon bridge, and the military has been using it for over for centuries, really. The Romans used them. The problem with pontoon bridges is that there's no way for traffic on a, on a river to, to go under it. That was the problem. And so we invented something that was a combination of a bridge that floats and a structural bridge called a suspension bridge, which is exactly what the Veranzano is. It sort of floats on air, and it kind of vibrates, but it's still sustained by an actual structure. So, in fact, we do have bridges that float. What I would like to see invented is something that can record your dreams. And there's been a couple movies. Right. You know, I actually had that idea as a a 10-year-old. And I'd love to be able to do that, you know, to watch a a movie of your dreams after you woke up. That would be really neat. Uh, Thank you, Lynn. I, I can't help but think that my father was thinking that as bright as my four-year-old brother was at the time, that maybe, you know, pontoons was not a discussion that he really wanted to get into in the, while he's sitting in traffic driving out to Brooklyn. 800-848-9222. Fred is in Brooklyn. Hello, Fred. Good morning. Morning. I'd like to see a um, something in the air, a mechanism in the air that when a politician or a mass media person tells a lie, bells will ring. Oh, that would be interesting. I would love to see that. That would be interesting. You know you know what the problem with that is? And I, you see this, you know, because networks do try to do this with fact checks and things like that. But even the fact checkers are subjective, right? So you, um, we might listen to the same statement from a politician. Now, look, if he says that he's eight feet tall when he's actually 5'10", that's pretty easy to refute. But unfortunately, so many of the lies that politicians tell or media personalities tell they fall in that gray area that's an interesting thought though fred i'd love to see it terry is in upstate hello terry yes uh fred 
Frank. Frank, yes. Oh, uh, Frank. Uh, can you give us a, a update on deconstruction from a, a, a Jock Dieter uh, venue? Because, you know, you've covered so much stuff. We might as well take the, the next step off the cliff and, and, and really deep dive. You go ahead and answer. I'll hang well, up. I, uh, Terry, I'm not following. What exactly is your question? Jock? Um, anybody Anybody know what he's talking about there? Kenneth, Matt? I didn't know. What did he hang up for? He, he told me he had an idea on time, so I, I don't know where that came from. Well, uh, yeah, so I don't know. Um, I don't know what he wanted an answer for. I would have been happy to answer the question, but I just don't know. By the way, so Matt Blaze, you're off tomorrow? Yes, sir. Well, you got some nerve th- taking off uh-huh. on Thanksgiving. Some Must nerve. be nice. No, well, Kenneth, you'll be here, though. I will not. Um, and Alex Barnard, is uh, is he going to be here? He will not be here. All three of you are off? <laughs> we are out of here. It's chaos when one of you is off. All three of you. So who does that leave us with tomorrow? Uh, Bill Lee. Bill Bro- Lee. Broadway Canada. Bill Lee will be here. He's from doing CBS. all three of your roles? He, oh, oh, he'll be on the board. I don't know uh, who else is going to be here. He's going to be in here with you. I don't know who's going to be on the other board. Kenneth, and I don't know do you who's... have any idea who's the uh, telephone talent coordinator? They have not informed me of that. They have not informed you. Have they informed you, Matt Blaze? You're a little higher up on the uh I would than... have to look it up, and I could find out for you. Yeah, I'd be curious. Very quickly. I'd be curious. Because I'm trying to figure out tomorrow's show, because it's almost like a Friday, even though it's a holiday. Right. So should we... I'm wondering if we should do Ask Frank Anything, if we should do commendations. I'm sort of on the fence and honestly, a lot will depend on who we have in terms of personnel here in order to facilitate uh, so those things. So tomorrow night, it will be, I'm going to find Thursday here, um, Billy will be on the board. Okay, right. You which made that I very clear, that. yes. Uh, and, and taking over for Kenneth's job. Uh well, I didn't, want to, so I didn't want to strain your brain there. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually looking at it. Okay. No, no, it's all right. You it's also right. need to check on everyone's allergies, right, for pizza? That's right. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. We have to check on everybody's uh, dietary. Joe, Joe will be here. And he's going to be the telephone talent coordinator? Joe will or is be he here. taking over for Alex? Joe will be the telephone talent coordinator. Okay. All right. Well, that's something. He struck me as competent. We could probably do Ask Frank Anything with him. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, th- I, think, you, you can handle, I think he can handle that. All right. Well, I mean, again, it's not exactly that much involved. It's pretty, pretty much answering the phone, it's telling people, get to your question right away, and putting them on hold and telling them to turn your radio off. But somehow, when there are certain telephone talent coordinators, it becomes a difficult thing. Now, um, a couple of people are emailing me with the Gmail unread search function. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, and I'll tell you why. Because Gmail, it divides all the email that I get into three categories. Primary, which is the stuff that I really want to read. Promotions, which is some stuff that I want to read. And I have to keep constantly... I'm in this constant battle, this constant wrestling match with Gmail. Only unlike professional wrestling, the outcome is not predetermined. You don't know who's going to win any given day. Is it going to be me? Is it going to be Gmail? Gmail usually wins. I am the Washington Wizards of email communication. So um, I keep having to drag newsletters that I want from promotions to primary. And I do it every day. And I say, oh, no, I I want this going to my primary. But 
there are thousands, to be precise, 19,675 emails in my primary news. So if I do a function to just bring me all the unread search items, it brings me all of them, including the ones that are in promotions and social. I can't be dealing with that. What is the old expression goes? Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody indeed. We've got time for Christina Fontanelli. Uh, she is a terrific singer, a terrific actress, and a terrific uh, entertainer. And uh, she's going to join us straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Jepson, who uh, had a birthday this week. It, she turned 37 years old two days ago. Can you believe that? Carly Rae Jepsen. She's one of those people that always seems eternally youthful. The same can be said for Christina Fontanelli. Uh, Christina Fontanelli is a magnificent actress, opera, opera singer, television presenter, you name it. If it's to be done in the world of entertainment, Christina Fontanelli has done it. Christina, it is great to see you. Thanks for coming in uh, studio so early in the morning. Well, it's quite an experience, Frank. It's wonderful to be here. How would you describe New York in the middle of the the wee hours of the morning as compared to what it's like in the middle of the day? Well, you know what? It really looked actually tranquil and I didn't see anything too scary. You know, that's the, the way, way I feel about it. Isn't, <laughs> yeah. that, isn't that funny? Uh, yeah. That is absolutely the way uh, that I feel about, uh, about New York at this time of the morning. It's incredibly peaceful. Now, I think a lot of people are familiar with you. You perform with everybody. You perform with our colleague Joe Piscopo. You perform with Tony Bennett. You performed at the White House under, I think, three different presidents. You've been uh, recognized all over the world. What I think a lot of people may not know the story of is how you got started in music. How long have you been performing? Oh, well, I, I, you know, a long time. (laughs) I'm laughing because you were speaking about Qatar before. Right. Believe it or not, I sang in Qatar. I I am not the least bit surprised. (laughs) I really did. I was actually in Qatar when Frank Sinatra passed away, and my mother, Francesca, God rest her soul, 
was from Hoboken. So I was reading like the, they call it the expats newspaper, you know, the English newspaper. Mm -hmm. And I saw Sinatra Park. I'm like in the hotel in Qatar (laughs) on tour with the ambassadors of opera. And uh, it was quite an experience. Qatar has, or or Qatar, has a Sinatra Park? No, no. They were writing about the fact that he passed away. And Sinatra Park was right in Hoboken. I see. Gotcha. So I'm sitting in Qatar in the hotel Qatar Qatar, and, and reading about Frank passing and my mother's there in Hoboken. It was kind of surreal, you oh, know? I can imagine. And then I went out and sang opera arias for all the... Now, you are an incredible singer in both English and Italian. Uh, we're going to let folks uh, hear some of your musical stylings in just a minute. Do you have a preference for which language you prefer to sing in? Well, Frank, you know what? Um, Italian is the original language of bel canto, great singing, so I think you know when when you speak when you sing in Italian, it just brings out the tonality of the voice the most. And I mean, of course, I love to sing in English because I'm communicating with my fans in the United States and the parts of the world that speak English. But actually, I'm known for Italian music. Italian has been my whole career, practically being Italian. But I sing in nine languages. Nine so languages. I, I do. Uh, how many I, languages do you speak in? I speak fluent Italian now. I speak some French. I never used it enough. And some German, some Spanish. I learned enough Japanese to entertain in Japan and to sing um, several songs in Japanese and Korean. I learned key phrases like, how are you, ladies and gentlemen? How difficult is it to sing in a language that you're not conversant in? Oh, it's very difficult because if if there's somebody in the audience that actually knows the words, you're always worried that you are substituting a vowel and it's a curse word instead <laughs> of a, you know, like, a, and believe it or not, Japanese is very much like Italian. Is that right? Yeah, the, their vowel system, I-A-E-O-U, you know? Well, I, I, <laughs> and, I, I, you know, I can see some of the similarities in terms of uh, a lot of the vowels that they use there. You, those similarities don't seem to translate to a lot of uh, a lot of foods, though. Japanese food has oh, no, a very different. No. I was always starving in Japan. I hate to say <laughs> it. The reason I became an opera singer was be- actually I started out. I wanted to be an actress. You said, "How did I start?" I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I really wanted to be an actor, they they call it now. But I kept getting these notes, you have to lose 15 pounds. You have to. I said, you know what, I'll just be an opera singer. You can act, you can sing, and you can eat the lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, you also studied at Juilliard, right? I did study at Juilliard. I studied mostly, it was uh, extension courses. I studied like music theory, and I had private singing lessons. Mm which have become part of my act when I appear at 54 Below. And, you know, I used to sing at Fine Signs at the Regency. And um, because my training was, was a little bit spotty, my road to vocal perfection <laughs> I, well, was colorful, to say the least. Uh, by the way, we're talking with Christina Fontanelli. If you want to learn more about her, you can go to the website, uh, ChristinaFontanelli.com. That's Christina with no H. And uh, if you've not seen uh, Christina Fontanelli at Feinstein's, it, I think it was probably best described by Forbes magazine. Uh, Christina Fontanelli at Feinstein's is like seeing a cross between Maria Callas and Ethel Merman. She has no equal. And I, I think that's 
certainly, certainly true. Uh, hey, tell me about this show that you're doing on December 17th at Lincoln Center. Yes, thank you, Frank. It is the 19th annual Christmas in Italy, it's called. Um, I had an inspiration 19 years ago to preserve the great songs of Italy because I sang at an event where there was a New York Times reporter, and I sang what I thought was a very famous song called Torna a Soriento, and um, he he loved it, but he came up to me and said, what is that, what is that? And I had to explain, it's a Neapolitan song, so I created this concert. I said, when can we do this? Oh, Christmas, yes, family time. We'll, we'll do a matinee, grandparents will come, the aunts, and that's what's happened. Tell me the name of that song again. Torna Soriento. Torna Soriento. We actually have a bit of uh, Christina Fontanelli singing Torna Soriento. Magnificent! I can see why uh, why the New York Times and other reviewers were so taken by it. So uh, you're going to be uh, performing this on Saturday, December 17th. There's two shows that day as part of uh, the 19th annual Christmas in Italy. Yes, it's my it's I produce it. We have children. Hundreds of children have appeared. They dance to Dominic the Donkey and other. Oh, I uh, love it. Yes, and, and they sing uh, to Shendi dalle Stelle, the Italian Christmas Carol, and other things. And it's actually through my foundation, the Christina Fontanelli Foundation, that um, I did this for so many years. And then finally I said, I can see I need to create this foundation because we're doing good work. We have hundreds of kids. They've even danced and sung at Carnegie Hall. Who do you benefit? Who, do, who benefits from the Christina well, Fontanelli Foundation? Well, we have the children that have these performance opportunities the mission statement is to produce these family-friendly uh, productions across the spectrum of the media. It can also be film. We have a little film that's streaming and maybe some animation in the future, but also to raise the awareness of the scientifically proven benefits, healing benefits of classical music that's and terrific. the arts. That's terrific. If people want to learn more about that, they can go to the Christina Fontanelli Foundation.org. Again, it's Christina with no H. So if you want tickets to see uh, Christina Fontanelli on December 17th, you can go to purplepass.com or you can call 800 316 8559. That's 800 316 8559. You've also become uh, sort of a staple on PBS stations around the country. Tell people about the work that you're doing and have done with PBS. Yeah, I love PBS. As a matter of fact, once again, being Italian was the thing that got me on PBS because I was hired to sing at a special event, a donor cocktail party at the Pompeii exhibit in Times Square. Mm. So I went there with my mandolin player and my pianist and, and I was singing. But my trademark also was to speak to the audience. So the producer came up. He happened to be there that day and he said, we need your energy. We need. So he put me right in Central Park for Andrea Bocelli's incredible special with Celine Dion and, you know, David Foster. I was one of five distinguished PBS hosts. I was the greenest one. <laughs> I had no experience. As a matter of fact, the director said, tone it down. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, they need my, my energy. <laughs> and then I saw his face, so I just toned it. You know, I became <laughs> a, right instantly on the spot. A PBS presenter, you know what I'm saying? And then I interviewed Il Volo, 
for the first time. You know, the group of wonderful oh, sure. young yeah. men now, they're incredible. But um, they had me come in because they felt like they needed somebody that could speak Italian, which I learned to do through the years from singing. And um, then I hosted a Michael Buble special, and I did a qigong. qigong. They tell me they raised a lot of money because well, I was... <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So can people see you on PBS regularly these days? No, not really. I mean, unless they call me in for these specials. Mm-hmm. We were working on possibly filming this Christmas in Italy, and uh, I might really want to, especially with my foundation, to create new products. You know, they need uh, content. So, yeah, I I don't know when the next one will be, but they'll probably be calling me. I feel like I'm part of their family now. So even though I'm not of uh, – even though I'm of Italian descent, I am not fluent in Italian. I'm barely conversant in Italian. And my dad, my grandmother, they were all great fans of opera. And I never really – I never really took to it uh, because, you know, when I would try to watch it on PBS or, or on television – it was it's certainly beautiful singing, and they would have subtitles at the bottom. But I don't know. It was a little bit di- difficult for me to follow the story um, in when they're singing in a in a foreign language. But I've always been told that if you go to an opera, that it's a very different experience, and that kind of will make you a believer in opera. One, do you think that's true? And two, what advice would you give to an opera layman who would like to learn more about opera and become a an opera fan? I think that people, I mean, when I first started, I didn't love the opera. I did not love the opera. And it, it, I loved the spoken word, which is why I gravitated towards the, sta- the you know, theater. But opera, you have to approach and not have intimidation, not be intimidated just let the melody sink into your soul, you know, and um, it's it's I don't know if it's an acquired taste. You have to go to see something that's accessible like La Boheme. Is that a good one to start? Oh, with? Oh, it is a good one. Just like the movie Moonstruck, mm-hmm. where when he takes Cher on a date to, sure, uh, at, the Met. to at the Met to La Boheme, you yeah. know, because it's uh, simple. It's a simple, beautiful story. It's a love story. And um one of the things that I always highlight, because I'm in, I'm really into now spreading this awareness, is that literally when you listen to this music, opera, classical music, your blood pressure goes down, your <laughs> cholesterol goes down. I always tell my audience, if there's any criminals in the audience, there's going to be less crime here today. And <laughs> these are all proven facts, actually. Uh, that is outstanding. I was talking <laughs> with Christina Fontanelli. She's appeared on stage with just about everybody over the years. She's been described as a vocal genius by the New York Sun. She's been awarded just about every award there is uh, to be given in entertainment. And uh, she is performing December 17th at Lincoln Center. Now, you alluded to the fact that uh, being an opera singer gives you the luxury of Enjoying lasagna. I know you performed all over all over Italy. There are some pretty significant differences between northern Italian cuisine and southern Italian cuisine, aren't oh, yes. there? Oh, there sure are. Yeah, do you have a preference? I do. I I don't love the cream sauces that uh-huh. come from the north. I you know I enjoy it, but it's not my go-to. Gotcha. We like our marinara. You know, like. Uh, we come. I come from the south. Where, same, do you same. know? Yeah, same. Your parents? Uh, yeah, Naples, yeah. Both, Naples. Both sides. Yeah. There you go. So you have to come because we have we have mandolins. You see, I love it. Christmas in Italy, we have the three mandolin players, uh, an accordion, guitar. You know, like the piano. Very folksy. Very traditional. 
when we do those Neapolitan songs, oh, you would just you would feel it in your bones. You know, I, obviously, I you know, I just basically sit here on the radio and talk and take phone calls. Uh, you have to do a whole different, wide range of performances as a, as an entertainer. But when you're and, and, and a performer in any respect, there's all sorts of unforeseen things that happen all the time. There was once an instance where you were singing at a surprise birthday party when a smoke broke out <gasps> and there was a fire scare. <laughs> Tell us what oh, happened. Yes. Yes. Well, I was called, at, you know, spur of the moment to sing at a wonderful person's birthday party, a socialite in Southampton. And actually, she really wanted to get on page six. <laughs> well, it happened because... You can't make this up. It was in a clothing boutique where that we were celebrating, and they started these um, what do you, what do you call those fire um, sticks? You know what? Do you, what do you, like Twizzlers, sparklers, sparklers, sparklers. Yeah. sparklers. And all of a sudden, I was singing "Happy Birthday." We can't make this up. I hit the last high note, literally, and the fire <laughs> alarm started going off. The smoke started. We all run out on the street in quiet Southampton. The fire trucks come. And the next thing you know, page six of the New York Post. That was the surprise. That is phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, there was no fire and and a great story to tell. If you want to see Christina Fontanelli on December 17th, you could certainly do so. Go to purplepass.com for tickets. You could also call 800-316-8559. I imagine being a performer that's performed all over the world, you become a little bit of a, a student of uh, of cinema. How would you describe it? I know you've done a couple of movies yourself. How would you describe the differences between American cinema and Italian cinema? <laughs> well, it's almost like the difference between American life and Italian life. Because Italian cinema is, uh, well, you know, it's real, and that's how people acted, especially the Fellini movies. You know, we, we're a little, we're over the top. Mm-hmm. We can be over the top, you know. The Americans oh, or the Italians. Or the Would... Italians. But in a, in a, I think in a sweet way, you know, uh, with the emotional range that Italians are known for. And I, I as far as the cinema, I'm not, a, I'm not technically an expert to say, but I'm really proud of the fact that it was like a childhood dream come true, that I won two Best Actress Awards in international film festivals. I was cast in a short comedy called Santino, where I play the opera singer cousin that comes to lunch with a family on Staten Island. Oh, that's terrific. As a Staten Islander, I have to check that out. Really, I have not seen that. Sh- I do have to check that out. How, how can I see that? Is that, uh, well, is that it, anywhere? Right now it's on YouTube. Oh, it's on YouTube. It, yeah, it's I'll on YouTube, it Santino. And um, my character didn't speak. Every line that I had, if even if I said, who's coming to the door, I sang it. You know, I sang it in Italian. I love it. That's great. I'm going to check that out. Santino on uh, on YouTube. Christina Fontanelli, it is always a treat to see you. Wishing you the best of luck with your show on December 17th. I hope a lot of our listeners will come. Thank you so much, Frank. Th- uh, thank you. And uh, we'll leave you with this rendition of Ave Maria from Christina Fontanelli.
other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You know, for those of you that used to watch Moranovision back in the day, um, this was my opening theme song to Moranovision, I believe, right? Uh, I'm trying to think if it was opening credits or closing credits. It was the opening. So there you go. Still playing Bruce Hornsby this many years later, even on his birthday. 800-848-9222. You know, Christina was telling me, she was kind enough to give me a couple of her uh, CDs, that uh, sometimes it, she it, she's heard from parents that when uh, children are fussing in the car, young children, and Carmine is one on Friday. Although, you know what? He was born on Thanksgiving, right? So last year, Thanksgiving was November 25th. So when I'm asked his birthday, I say that it's Thanksgiving. When my wife is asked his birthday... She says his birthday is November 25th. Now, why is one more valid than the other? Why can't his birthday always be Thanksgiving? Why can't we say he was born on the third Thursday in November? So his birthday is the third Thursday in November. Why is that depiction any less valid than November 25th? I don't think it should be because we don't. You know, we don't celebrate Thanksgiving on November 25th. We celebrate Thanksgiving on the third Thursday in November, except for when Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to extend the shopping season and uh, get it a little earlier. They called that Franksgiving. No relation. But uh, and I think James Madison actually tried to pull off two Thanksgivings in one year. That did not go over that well, from what I recall. But I don't understand why November 25th is a more acceptable version of a birth date than third Thursday in uh, November. I'm telling him his birthday is on Thanksgiving. But what if it's not on Thanksgiving? Well, it is like on Thanksgiving. Year. Well, I mean... It's, it's not on November 25th. It is on November 25th. No, no, no. no but uh, you see what I'm saying? You're trying to say that th- like Thanksgiving in place of the date. Yeah. Right. The so, day of Thanksgiving. So, I mean, think about what you're saying. You and my wife, you, the two of you are saying that yeah, this holiday that's celebrated by millions of Americans, it's okay to celebrate that the third Thursday in November, but Carmine, who was born on that same day, right. you're saying, no, 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 no. We have to be rigid and celebrate that and observe that only on November 25th. What sense does that make? Well, that would be like saying Christmas is always on the same day of the week every year, and it's not. But Thanksgiving is, and so is Carmine's birthday. Why not? Because Carmine was born on the 25th of November, which next year will be on a 
Saturday. Saturday. Right. And then year after that, it's going to be on a Monday. But so what? Uh, you know, why can't <laughs> he was born on the third Thursday in November? Why can't his birthday be the third Thursday in November? Right? Well, it's like, or, or what about saying like somebody born on leap year only celebrates a birthday every four years? Well, it, first of all, it's not at all like that. But that's it, what you're saying because no, you're saying no, it no, by no. a day. For, first of all, I know. And not by a day. I do know people that celebrate their birthday once yeah, every you know, four years. Not we, real. We, not everybody is Reed Cosby where we have three straight days of celebration. By the way, I was going to talk about that later. You know, we had a big party for Rita Cosby on whatever. This was Friday, I think we started, right? Yeah, her, Friday? Bir- her birthday was on Saturday. Right. So I got I got cake for Rita and everything, and um, cupcakes and so forth, and we we're happy to do it. And we had a big party. We sang. Then yesterday, Dominic Carter brings in cake for Rita Cosby's birthday. Today, I come into the kitchen. There's a third cake now. Again, I'm all for Rita getting as many birthday wishes as she wants. But as she said, this isn't a birthday that ends in a zero. I don't understand why there's three straight days of cake. George Washington and Martin Luther King don't get this degree of celebration for their birthday. So I hope, uh, you know, she's having a good time. The cake today is really something. Apparently, it's a cake that she was awarded at a special gala where she was recognized. It's her. And this is just a portion of the cake, apparently. It's the top of the cake. It's her on a television set, and it's really neat. They have a, a photo of her on the on the on the cake. On it's a facsimile of a television on the cake, so it's really nice. Uh, I am not that much of a cake person. I'll have a slice if it's someone's birthday. You don't want to be rude, you know. You want to look like you're a good sport, but not for three, three straight days. Not for three straight days. I'm a pie guy. I like pie. You know what? Uh, again. Matt Blaze and my wife, they see things as they are, and they ask why. I see things as they are not, and I ask why not, right? That's why if I ever have a birthday party, I am um, having a birthday pie instead of a cake. Birthday pie. Who's to say a cake is a superior uh, way to celebrate a birthday? I don't think it is. I am birthday pie for me. Additionally, while we're on the subject of uh, of things, I said yesterday, if Kanye West wants to get a shot in the arm for his presidential campaign, you know what he should do? He should say that if he's elected president, he will put an end to the tradition of the White House turkey pardon. This has got to be the most absurd, ridiculous tradition in history. Well, I mean, maybe not the most absurd, but it's right up there. It's like the top five. And I will tell you, if I'm ever president of the United States, there will be no turkey pardon. We're actually going to call some attention to these turkeys that are being massacred. And there will be no turkey pardon because it implies these turkeys have done something wrong. They have not. Until next hour, help control the turkey population. Get your turkey spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. You ever think of changing your name? No, I never have. I love my name, and I would not change it, um, even if I were to be publicly disgraced. Right? I, would, I, I like my name. I think it's got a cool syllable situation. I think it's got a good mix of uh, conventional American and ethnic. I think it's a cool name for everything you know that I do with it. But I have known people that have changed their name over the years. All sorts of reasons. Um, I guess one of the best examples in the world of politics is the uh, former mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio. He was born Warren William Wilhelm. He was the original WWW. And then because he kept getting confused with the World Wide Web, he changed his name to legally to Bill de Blasio. And then uh, in the world of pro wrestling, there's been a number of instances of people changing their name. Best example that I could think of is the Ultimate Warrior. He was he was born under the name Jim Helwig, and he legally changed his name to Warrior. And his wife, who he's passed away, but his widow and his children have that as their last name, Warrior. That's their last name. They run around town. Saying I'm um, Danielle, I, I don't know if that's the name, but whatever, Shirley, Warrior. So there are all sorts of reasons that people might change their name. Can you think of an instance where maybe it would be inappropriate to change your name, where the, somebody should be prohibited from changing their name? There was a guy, uh, speaking in the world of politics, there was a guy who was an OG libertarian. And uh, I haven't thought about this guy in 12 years. And um, his name, I believe, was Jim Libertarian. And he was uh, he's run for office as a uh, Libertarian candidate before. He's very passionate about the Libertarian Party, tried to run for vice president as, uh, as a Libertarian. I think it was Jim Libertarian. Another fella legally changed his name to none of the above for the world of uh, politics. Sometimes people change their names for family reasons. Maybe they don't get along with their parents. They don't want to have their last name. Sometimes people change their name because of uh, public reasons. They're, they're well known under certain things. By the way, you'd be surprised how often people don't change their names. You know what Michael Keaton's real name is? Michael Douglas. And he has no interest in changing it. He couldn't use that as a stage name because you had Michael Douglas, the actor, and you had Mike Douglas, the talk show host. So he couldn't use that. Um, He couldn't be Michael Douglas or Mike Douglas. So he chose to be Michael Keaton as sort of a tribute to Buster Keaton. You have um, Jesse Ventura. That's somebody that covers the world of wrestling, politics, and acting. You know what his real name is? James Janis. And that is his real name. Um. Can you think of an instance in which it might be inappropriate to change your name? How about you, Matt Blaze? We have to get all our wisdom out of you today since you're not going to be with us tomorrow. Yes. What's what's a situation where maybe somebody wants to change their name and they should not be permitted to do so? And well, if it's uh, if it's vulgar. Okay. Okay, so you say if it's vulgar. Right. How come? Well, if you, if it's a if it's considered vulgar language, and, well, let's say I and you're to, in school. Could you imagine you name your kid a curse word? Okay, well, well that's what I'm saying. Something well, like that. That's different than what we're talking about, right? Uh, if I name my child something, 
that's different than the child changing their name to something, right? Well, in the same instance, I mean, yeah. you wouldn't change your name to something vulgar. Well, okay, maybe you would. Bec- All right, but can you think of any other instance where maybe somebody should not be permitted to change their name? If they're running from something. If they're running from something, that's a good one. See, I asked this question to a judge yesterday. And he said somebody came before him recently for a name change. And he said, well, I see there's an order of protection against you. He said, there is no way that I am approving this name change unless there's an amendment to an order of protection to clarify that under this guy's new name, he still is prohibited from coming anywhere near this lady that has the order of protection against him. That's a good one. Uh, Another one, and this comes up very frequently, is if you want to change your name to, say, um, John F. Kennedy III, right, or uh, Andrew Cuomo Jr., right, you're not really related, at least there's no record that you're related to certain uh, celebrity, and you want to go out and pull a con on the public by... Passing yourself off as a Trump, a Cuomo. I think William Shatner had somebody that claimed to be his illegitimate son. He tried to change his name to William Shatner uh, or Junior or whatever it was. That's something I could absolutely understand people putting a stop to. Well, let me tell you what is happening here in New York City. This, in my view, does not cover any of the territory that I've just stated or... That Matt Blaze here has just stated. Nancy Evelina Torres Amos, a mother of five, wanted to change her name. She initially wanted to be renamed as Imperious Highness Archduchess Goddess Jesus Christ Evelina Lucifer Obama. But When she went to civil court to change her name last month, the court personnel said, sorry, you have to shorten that to an eight-word request because it's too long. Okay, I get that. So Miss Nancy Evelina Torres Amos did comply. So they told her to fix it up and shorten it, and she instead chose as her new name, Jesus Christ Evelina Lucifer Obama citing, quote, personal preference in court paperwork as her reason for wanting this very elaborate name. Despite the flexibility that Miss Torres Amos was willing to show in choosing the shorter name, Judge Matthew Blum, a civil court judge here in New York City, who I know, uh, not well, uh, but I've met him, shot down the name change application according to law.com. This was the rationale the judge used. He said, the new name would cause, quote, public alarm and undue stress. That's what the judge wrote in his decision on November 3rd. Now, I read the decision right before the show. It's only five pages. It was quick, and that was the gist of it. They said it would cause um, undue caused public alarm and undue stress. By assuming the name Jesus Christ is one expected to praise you. 
On the other hand, by assuming the name Lucifer, is one expected to avoid or reject you? Are you claiming to be the son of God or prince of darkness? Are you forcing a non-believer in either of these entities to accept the existence of these entities? That's what the judge wrote in his decision. My answer is no. There are people named Jesus. There are people named Lucifer. If she wants to be Jesus Christ, well, let me make sure I have the name correct here. Jesus Christ, Evelina, Lucifer, Obama, she ought to be able to. Do you think if you believe in Jesus that you're going to run into this woman? Hi, I'm Frank. What's your name? Oh, I'm Jesus Christ, Evelina, Lucifer, Obama. You think I'm going to start getting on bended knee and start worshiping this woman? She'll be waiting a while if that's what she's waiting for. Do you think uh, if she says that her last name is Lucifer Obama, that people are going to somehow think she's related to uh, Barack and Michelle? I doubt it. I have to tell you, I completely disagree with this judge's decision and the rationale for it. If she was trying to pass herself off as, you know, um, whatever, Barack Obama Jr., that's one thing. But come on. Clearly, this is someone who is maybe a few aces short of a full deck. That being said, I think she's got every right to change her name. This is strikes me as someone that doesn't necessarily have a lot going in their life. Maybe, as I said, a few aces short of a full deck. If she wants to change her name as a form of creative expression or personal preference, or if she just gets a buzz out of people of being able to fill out paperwork that says Jesus Christ, Evelina, Lucifer, Obama, I say good for her. God bless her. Who is this judge to stop her? I don't think this is the right decision. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Miss Torres Amos did do an interview with the New York Post about this about her attempts to change the name to Jesus Christ, Evelina, Lucifer, Obama. This is what she said. Imperial Highness, Archduchess, Goddess, Jesus Christ, Evelina, Lucifer, Obama. Oh, that's the full name you applied for? I hope the community right now. I was working for Amazon, but I went through the training, the drug test, everything. They never gave me a schedule. (laughs) Okay. But it's all right. I have my plate full already as it is. I help a lot of people, families in the communities, no matter where I go in the world. And she was trying to open up the floodgates to let everybody know that I was coming back. Out of my false imprisonment from a spell that was casted back in the day when I was crucified, first off, as Jesus Christ. I was crucified here in the Bronx. They took my body back overseas to put it in a tomb to lock me up in a spell. All right, so maybe she's going to have to, you know, for her next date, go out with the guy that's talking to the spirit of George Washington. Okay, so what? Um, This is a woman who grew up in foster care. Her children are currently in foster care. And um, she said she wasn't angry. She told Law.com and the New York Post she was not angry about being spurned. She said it was enough for them to understand that I know who I am. I think that um, I think the judge is wrong, quite frankly. What do you say? I think he's wrong legally, ethically, morally. 800-848-9222. The judge said in his decision, allowing this name change would place unwitting members of the public in the position of having to proclaim 
Torres Amos's religious beliefs, which may or may not be in agreement with that person's own beliefs. No, it wouldn't. It would not infringe upon everybody, anybody else's religious beliefs in the world. You mean, what if someone's named Zeus? What if someone wanted to change their name to Zeus? You had that wrestler that was in the movie No Holds Barred with Hulk Hogan. His name was Zeus. Were people worshiping him? Did people expect that he would send out uh, bolts of lightning? No, of course not. This is a bad decision as far as I'm concerned. Is this woman a little not sure? You know, I'm reminded of the show SCTV. Maybe this is not the right person to use this analogy on, but there's a character on SCTV um, played by John Candy. And there's one episode, and Lionel, Lionel, the talk show host, used to say this of me. Uh, there's this one episode where John Candy's character is uh, running for mayor. Something LaRue. Uh, I'll, I'll look it up. So no need to call with SCTV corrections. But this guy in this character is running for mayor. And he, there's a commercial or there's a commentary. Johnny LaRue. Johnny LaRue. And there's a commercial where they say, Johnny LaRue, crazy, sure he's crazy but he just might be right. Now, I think that certainly applies to me, but it might also apply to this uh, Nancy uh, Evelina Torres Amos. Is she crazy? Maybe. But did she go through all the proper steps to change her name? Yes. Should she be able to change her name? Yes. What's it to you if she changes her name? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Eric. In the Isle of Manhattan. Hello, Eric. <laughs> Isle of Manhattan. I haven't heard that before. Um, well, before you said the judge had shot it down, I, I was thinking, well, you really shouldn't encourage that type of thing. I mean, because uh, have you seen her? I mean, she could be, she could really, really, really look nuts, too. Yeah, she looks I mean, nuts. Maybe, she looks nuts. <laughs> maybe he decided to err on the side of caution, like not kind of encourage and not play into it. You know what I mean? I don't know. Well, but oh, you Frank, know what, I got though? the pen insurance. <laughs> oh, you did. You got the pen insurance. Good. I'm glad to yeah, hear that. Yeah, yeah. But honestly, but uh, but Eric, let's say you're right. And again, uh, I've met Judge Blum several times. He strikes me as a very sane and sober individual. Uh-huh. But <laughs> there's he's not being called upon to evaluate this woman's mental health. It's not like she got arrested uh, because of a, a psychotic incident and he needs to make a determination should she be mandated to be institutionalized or not. He's That's there true. to preside over an institutional name change. Well, he, he's well. He's in a position to have, look what's going on now, like having to see what happens to someone after he lets him go or not. You know what I mean? But I see what you're saying. All things being equal, she should be able to change her name to whatever she wants. To, right. Well, thank you, Eric. Crazy these days. Eric, sure. if you were going to change your name, what would you change it to? Oh, Eric hung up. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi, Robert. I could think of. I can think of three instances where no one should be allowed ever to change their name. Okay. Animal animal abuser, domestic violence, or sex offender. Well, I mean, um, but I, I don't know what the law calls for there. But obviously, if somebody's trying to hide, if they say an animal abuse registry, and you're trying to evade being placed on the animal abuse registry by changing your name, I would certainly agree with you. No doubt about it. I don't know that any of those apply to this woman here. 800-848-9222. Six open lines if you want to comment. Russell is in North Carolina. Hello, Russell. 
Hey, Frank, you know, it's funny you mentioned Zeus. Remember Magnum P.I.? The, yeah, the yeah. two governments were Zeus and Apollo. Right, right. And I uh, do. hey, uh, the guy you were trying to—you brought up George Washington too. The guy the other night, he he failed, man. He was trying to channel George Washington, and you kept trying to get the information out of him. But uh, but anyway, you you hit two home runs, man, tonight. You you're like Aaron Judge, man. With with your interviews, they well, were great. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, we did have three guests, so I would have loved to have hit three home well, runs, but I, I'll I take two. I tuned in at two. I tuned in at two, so I didn't hear the first one. All right, well, I'll, I'll um, take it, Russell. Two out of three ain't bad. But, but right, exactly, like Meatloaf said, right? Exactly. But, anyway, um, but the the guy that was talking about, you know, the college debt and all that and everything else, and I'm like, yeah, I know lawyers, accountants, and everything charging 100 bucks an hour. My mechanic charges 90 no, again, Russell, and uh, and thank you for the call. Um, Mike Porcelli, when he was here, he was a mechanic. He's a big advocate of trade education. He made some of these same points that um, that Mike uh, Gibson made in his column. I think he's right on the money. If you wanted your son to make money, if if my son were to come to me as a nineteen, as an eighteen year old, seventeen year old, and say, Dad. I want to just find a way to make sure that I can earn a living, a good living. And I'm thinking about either becoming a radio talk show host or a plumber. You know what I would suggest to him? It's not even close. Before he finished asking the question, I would say plumber. If he said, you know, Dad, I'm thinking of becoming a, um, a lawyer or an electrician. And all I want to do is earn a living. I don't really have a great passion for either of those jobs. You know what I would say? Electrician. Yet we have fetishized higher education in this country. And again, I'm not against higher education. I went to graduate school. Um, I learned a lot more about not just my profession, but, you know, a lot of other things. Not in a schoolroom, in, in a classroom. And I'm not knocking it. I, I have a lot of respect for... People that have uh, higher education degrees. I'm very envious of my brother Nick, who has a PhD. But um, I think we've created this mythos that if you're a blue collar worker or if you make a decision that doesn't involve going to college and saddling yourself with $300,000 worth of debt, you're somehow less than the people that do choose to go the college route. I don't think that's right. I I think there are a lot of different callings for people. And I don't think that we should make someone that doesn't want to go to college feel bad, especially if they have other goals. 800-848-9222. Helena is in Westchester. Hello, Helena. Hi. Hi. Number, Number one, you are extraordinary. I can't get over you. You are just so special. Okay. Helena. Enough of that. My wife ever throws me out. I'm calling you. (laughs) Oh, I would adore to have you with me. She should appreciate you. I agree. She should. (laughs) But, you know, when you have children, uh, there's tension. Oh, no, no. Things are great. Uh, Don't misunderstand me. I'm just joking around. No, but there is tension, so things change. But then... As the children get a little bit older, you know, the tod- toddlers uh, get less 
All right, I don't want to talk about that. Anyway, this is something very um, important that I have to tell you. I happen to be a person that has um, multiple personality disorder. And Couldn't you so immediately see this coming? As soon as she said woman, that I was special and just great, didn't you knew, know she had a mental illness? And I, I, mean, I could have seen that because, from uh, Jump Street. As soon as changed. she said, you're so special and so great and I'd love to be with I you, you knew she was mentally ill. You knew it. I knew how it. I act, mm-hmm. how, how I talk, and it scares me um, because I don't know how to deal with it. And uh, people around me are aware of it. And I don't know. It's just very hurtful to me because I'm a good person, but sometimes I'm very uh, neurotic. Yeah. And I can't control it. What do you think about that? And I wonder if there's anybody out there that has the same thing. And and especially, my friend, uh, if I have a a couple of beers or something, I definitely change. Yeah. Is it a stark change? Is it like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of a thing? Well, I don't get bad. Actually... When I drink, I get more loving. Oh, interesting. And and I get more expressive and more emotional. But if I you know, don't I think drink, I actually did date I'm this kind woman. of just reserved. I see, Helena. Um, uh, serious question though. Did did you are, are you um clearly this could be a, a potentially very serious thing. Are you getting care? Are you getting proper care for your 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 condition, your situation? I tried. I, I uh, since I was even in high school, I went to a psychologist, and then after that, uh, later on, I tried a couple. I tried uh, talking therapy, and uh, nothing changed, you know. But I'm definitely a kind-hearted person, loving, and everything, and. But I'm hurting. I am hurting because I don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to deal with it. I, I'm just, I'm just expressing myself. No, I understand that, Helena. No, I feel, um, you know, I feel a lot of empathy, um, you know, for you. There is. Uh, I know New York City, even though you're in Westchester, New York City has something called uh, NYC Well, um, where there's counselors that you can talk to. And sometimes it just helps to be able to talk and have somebody listen and maybe give you some advice on your specific situation. If you call 888-NYC-WELL, um, they'll, there's a counselor there that can talk with you, 888-692-9355. I think, um, you know, what's the harm in, uh, in trying them and call, reaching out to them and, uh, and seeing if they can help with some of the pain that you're going through, which I could tell is very deep? I'll tell you why. Because I'm frustrated because I've gone through a, a couple of psychologists and it's all BS. 
It's all BS. Well, I, I hear you, Helena, but uh, just because you had a bad experience with a few uh, people that were, were mental health uh, specialists, that doesn't mean that nobody can help you. And as I said, sometimes it might help just to uh, be able to talk and have somebody listen, even if they're not necessarily able to be uh, helpful to you. Uh, you, can... you know what? Just listening to you helps me. Oh, so well, there you go. You, usually I drive people the other way. Um, <laughs> you, you can also, Helena, try 988. If you dial 988, that's in the New York State Office of Mental Health, and uh, they can help uh, people that are having a tough time or experiencing distress. I, I don't see the harm, Helena. Why not try it? Look, I'm not nuts. I'm just suffering. And, no, I, and Yeah, I get it. I get it. Okay. Well, I just have to say one last thing, mm-hmm. that you've helped me more than any of those uh, people with degrees. Well, so there you go. Thank you, Helena. I wish I could say I was surprised to hear that, but I'm not. I, I appreciate your compliment very much. I hope you have a, th- a happy Thanksgiving, and uh, I hope you uh, can hopefully do something to alleviate some of the pain that you're experiencing. Well, I'm going to be alone on Thanksgiving, but uh, it doesn't matter. Having you is the best thing in the whole world. God bless you. God love you. And I'm going to keep listening forever. Thank you, Helena. Hopefully I'm on the air forever, if for no other reason than to uh, continue to lift your spirits. So thank you. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Call again, okay? Absolutely. Thank you, Helena. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I feel bad for Helena. She's clearly uh, going through a tough time, and um, and this goes to everybody that's listening, especially people that are dealing with loneliness and things of that nature. One, I agree with Helena that I am doing more to help the lonely people than most of these people with postgraduate degrees. That's number one. I agree completely with her. It was shocking to me how much of what she said I agreed with. Second. Um, you know, loneliness is a real problem. And if you're alone uh, for a holiday that is traditionally family-oriented, like Thanksgiving, that can be very challenging. And I'm glad we're going to be here on the air tomorrow because I have some strategies that I'm going to share with folks who might find themselves alone tomorrow. And, um, you know, it can really drive people crazy. And uh, I think that uh, if you have an option to spend time with somebody tomorrow, even if you think you prefer to be alone, you know, uh, what's the harm in, in uh, spending having a meal with somebody on Thanksgiving, right? You could talk about uh, how everybody else is uh, is you know is a loser or, or something like that. But I just think, um, like I was trying to say to Helena, you know, she clearly didn't benefit from the experiences that she's had with mental health counselors and others over the years. That doesn't mean they're all bad. You know, you go to a bad doctor. That doesn't mean they're all bad doctors. Same thing if you go to a bad attorney. It doesn't mean they're all bad attorneys. So I would encourage you, if you feel similarly situated to Helena um, and you're a New York State resident, dial 988. 988. Uh, they offer 24-7 access to trained counselors who can help people who are experiencing uh, emotional distress. Don't think that means you're crazy just if you call that number. It just means you're having a tough time. And hopefully they can steer you in a direction that uh, is a productive one and a positive one. Because uh, I really I really empathize with um with Helena. But uh, it is tough. 800-848-9222. Andy B. is on Staten Island. Hello, Andy. Hey, have a happy Thanksgiving. You too, my friend. You too. 
thank you, Paul. You know, that was a nice call, Elena. Yeah, nice I like her call. a lot. Yes, yes. Uh, and now, what about the CD? Have you found it again, Frank? No, I got to. You know what I just did? I just sent myself an email. Uh, reminding myself when I'm home this afternoon to listen. I don't have anything, I don't think, scheduled this afternoon, so I'm going to do it this afternoon. Andy, I, you got what I kind of phone do you have? I have idea what you got to do with it. You yes. got to play it when John is in there with Maybe that, that, that is an idea. Maybe I will uh, look at that, Andy. Andy, what you kind know, of phone do you have? have it for him. And what we, what we do is we want to find a part, like four lines right. that you really feel good with. And you just do them. Yeah, I I, I'm, I'm all about it, Andy. Andy, when you don't respond to the questions that I ask, is that because you don't hear me or because you're ignoring the questions I'm asking? No, no, no. Sometimes I don't hear you. You know, I have Parkinson's a little bit. So gotcha, gotcha. Um, I get a little excited when I'm on the phone. Hey, I hear I get you. I, I hear you. But I have but to I'll think. Down. I, I have to think, though, the, the quality of the telephone that you're using is not the best. What kind of phone do you have? My God, Frank, I'm, I'm hooking up a new two-phone two system as we, I've been listening to the show tonight. It's a Panasonic. It's the most expensive, like, wireless for your house. And it's the worst phone I've ever had. <laughs> I want to give Panasonic a little, you know, tell them that they are the worst. Thank I bet. You. I bet. Uh, well, hey, I would agree with you, Andy, if that's what you're talking that's to us. About. Hey, uh, ho- call me tomorrow. I'll be here tomorrow, okay? We'll, we'll hopefully guys, compare I, notes. I like the guitar or ask you to sing or anything. The phone is the worst, right? Yeah, oh, no, 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 no. I agree with you completely. Uh, so far, you're the only caller I've agreed with more than Helena tonight. Uh, Andy, I'll talk to you tomorrow, and uh, maybe we'll play a couple of bars of your uh, Thanksgiving song, okay? Hey, Frankie, come on. All right, thank you, uh, Andy. P- appreciate it. Happy Thanksgiving. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Paul in Connecticut. All right, Paul, uh, your predecessors as callers have had multiple personality disorder and Parkinson's. What is your condition? Uh, bipolar disorder. There you go. Okay. Um, uh, I, I'm glad we're, we're batting a 1,000 this hour. That's for poly, sure. Poly they say polysubstance abuse. Okay. Ooh. All right. Well, I, okay. We 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 we're on a roll here. What did you want to talk about, though, Paul? Well, I was going to say, if you were going to be a professional wrestler, would you? Did you ever think of a name for yourself? My name as a pro wrestler would be Mister Fabulous. Nice. Hey, what about yours? Uh, what would yours be, Paul? Oh, uh, the pharmacist. The I pharmacist. Yep, I'd have to <laughs> tie, him, tie him to the ring and slap him up a little and say, would they like Thorzine or Baby Aspirin? <laughs> That's not bad, actually. That's not a bad gimmick, actually, Paul. I've, I've seen worse. That's better than the Red Rooster. Oh, I can tell you a funny story about a turkey once. <laughs> My friend shot the thing, and then he gave it to me, and I... Got all the feathers off it the right way, and then I cooked it. Everything. I was sitting at the table with my sister, and I bit into it, and there was like a buckshot pellet in it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, so then I, that was a ruined dinner. But oh. Hey, uh, oh, Paul, boy. I hope you're doing something fun for Thanksgiving tomorrow. Thanks for, thanks for calling. Listen to me. We're going to be on tomorrow for all four hours of this program. So thank you. All right. Well. 
I'm not sure where we go from here. I'll tell you where we are going to go. We're going to try and give away $1,000. If you would like to try your hand at answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then please be so good as to call 800-848-9222. If you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, we will give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Do that, you win $1,000. Wouldn't that make for a nice holiday? That would be great, huh? Thousand dollar minute, straight ahead. To be the man, you gotta beat the man. I'm the man. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than fifty percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's always good times whenever we get to uh, try and give away a thousand dollars, especially when they win. Um, and uh, I think Mike, who won last Monday, I think he's now started charging us interest. He's so upset that he's. I mean, for all I know, uh, he is going to get paid. I don't know why this was such an issue. I don't know why he felt the need to complain to Curtis. By the way, let me suggest to people that um, if you have an issue with something. The worst thing you could do is call Curtis on the radio. I mean, I don't know what that's going to do. You know, <laughs> you know you, you're better off emailing and, uh, you know, trying to <laughs> handle things that way. All right. Uh, without further ado, let us see if we can't have a repeat of what happened last Monday and give away some money. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. All right, Mike. Uh, we have had Parkinson's, uh, multiple personality disorder, bipolar disorder, substance abuse. Uh, I'm guessing you have no limbs. You're right. Am I? Okay. All right. Well, good. Hopefully you'll be able to buy a nice prosthetic with this uh, $1,000 you're about to win. You know how to play the game, Mike? I think so. All right. Well, so it's very simple. That You're going to have 60 seconds to run through 10 questions. The timer will begin after I ask the first question. These are pretty easy questions, at least until question 
eight, I'll say. Um, if you get an answer right, I'm just going to move on to the next one so that we can run through them quickly. If you get an answer wrong, Matt Blaze is going to play a buzzer for you, and the contest will end. Okay, you ready to go? Yep. Name a Thanksgiving side dish. Cranberry sauce. What day of the week does Thanksgiving fall on? Thursday. Before landing at Plymouth, what country did the pilgrims come from? The pilgrims came here for religious freedom from where? It's where everybody came from. Right, okay. Area 51 is located in what U.S. state? There's gambling there. Mm. Area 51. Um, Nevada? Correct. Where do U.S. vice presidents live? Where do U.S. vice presidents live? Yeah, presidents live in the... Anyone? All right, uh, Mike, um, you, unfortunately, we, we ran out of time. I'm going to put you on hold, and um, Kenneth is going to take your information, and we're going to give you a consolation prize. You did not win. You got uh, four questions correct. Yes, uh, Area 51 is in Nevada. But um, vice presidents, I'm not going to use this question tomorrow. Vice presidents live, this is important for you to know, because this is actually a pretty common trivia answer. Vice presidents live on the grounds of the U.S. Naval Observatory. The U.S. Naval Observatory. All right. A couple of things. Tell you what I observed yesterday. My son's vocabulary is expanding rapidly. I have three cats. You know what their names are? Prissy, Melchizedek, Bathsheba. So yesterday, my wife, you know, Bathsheba had to visit her oncologist. Because she, unfortunately, has uh, lymphoma. And um, this is my wife's favorite cat. If you gave my wife a choice of throwing Bathsheba out or throwing me out, it wouldn't even be a contest. I mean, you hear there would be less time with that decision being made than it took Mike to come up with Nevada as the place where Area 51 is. It would be instant. It would be, all right, see you later. Uh, she's so fond of this cat, and you can understand why. She's a wonderful cat, a beautiful cat, very friendly. If you came to rob our house, Bathsheba would rub up right against next to you and ask to be pet. You go up to Prissy, you wouldn't see her because she runs away. She runs away as soon as anybody um, ru- walks into the room that she's in, I- except Rachel. Rachel's the only person she likes. Melchizedek, he, li- he likes Rachel and he likes me. Everyone else will get swatted and will get scratched. My mom, my stepmother, two of my siblings, my uncle, countless others all have scars from Bathsheba and his, uh, not Bathsheba, Melchizedek and his Wolverine-like way of swatting at people over the years. He's me. Bathsheba, on the other hand, is as friendly as can be to everybody. So that's why it's really such a bummer that she has cancer. But... Obviously, that means my wife is taking her care very seriously. So she had to take Bathsheba to the oncologist yesterday. That is an hour and a half drive from where we live, both ways. And um, 
I'm in bed, and I had woken up because I heard some conversation going on downstairs. My wife was talking with our son's babysitter, Lorraine, and with Carmine. I think Lorraine was holding Carmine. My wife is holding Bathsheba. And my wife says to Carmine, all right, Carmine, we're going to go. We're going to take Bathsheba to the doctor. Carmine's staying home with Lorraine and with me. And Carmine says, Bathsheba. And I hear, this is all from my bedroom while they're downstairs at the bottom of the steps. I hear one of them say, either my wife or Lorraine, I hear one of them say, wait a minute, did he just say Bathsheba? And he says it again. Wow. He says Bathsheba twice. Now, Bathsheba is not an easy name for a almost one-year-old to say. And yet here he was saying it repeatedly. So uh, that was a big, big deal for us today is that he can now say uh, Bathsheba's name. Vocabulary expanding rapidly. He says Dada. He says Cat. He says Dog. And he says, depending on his mood, either What's This or What's That? Those are his, that's the totality of his vocabulary thus far. Um, so it's growing. It's growing exponentially. All right. Um, what else do we have? You know, the, the other thing is, when my wife was with child, we started considering what doctor, what pediatrician we were going to uh, take him to. And so there's a pediatrician right around the corner from us, which we love. Because, obviously, if he's sick, that means we can go right around the corner. And that's great. It's walking distance. I'm a big believer in convenience. So we meet with this fella. And as we're in the waiting room waiting to see him, my wife says, well, you know, he's 71 or 72. I don't feel great about that. He's, you know, he's older. He's probably going to retire soon. I'd like somebody that we can have commented with for a long time. And so we meet with this fella. The fella is incredibly charming, incredibly charming, and very youthful. He, I think, has fewer gray hairs than I do. Exactly, I, That's actually true because he's bald. Um, he's a great guy, uh, seems like a very competent doctor, a singer, has a fascinating biography. And the first thing he says to us is, and I'm not retiring, became a doctor later in life. He's got a lot of energy. Okay. And our visits, we've been pretty happy with his care. So, uh, Carmine has a pediatrician's appoint, uh, appointment set up for December 12th, just a checkup. And the doctor's office calls my wife and says, I'm sorry, Dr. So-and-so, I'm not going to say who it is, Dr. So-and-so is not going to be working here anymore. He's going to a new office. He's probably only going to be working two or three days a week. Uh, or something along those lines. No, he's going to a new office. You have to schedule him uh, directly. You have to call this office and schedule an appointment with him and let us know if you want your records sent there. Okay. So two days ago, we get a letter in the mail that says he's going to be working two or three days a week. And that sounds a lot like retirement. So my wife calls yesterday to make an appointment for December 12th. You know what they tell her? They said, Dr. So-and-so is only working on Thursdays after 10 a.m. No, excuse me, every other Thursday and Saturdays after 10 a.m. Now, that's not two or three days a week. 
that's one and a half days a week. That's almost two days a week. And so it sounds very much like he's easing into retirement because in this letter it says that um, that he's going to be moving to part-time practice. So uh, essentially we lose the convenience factor because he's not around the corner from us anymore. And we now have to deal with a doctor that's potentially retiring. Now, we were talking about what to do and how to handle this. So we may end up uh, checking out this doctor that he's partnering with now. But still, we've gone from a an, an eight-minute walk to a 15-minute drive, which is not something we're excited about. So we're thinking about changing pediatricians. Uh, but we did feel, I got to tell you, as much as I like this doctor, we felt a little misled by by this doctor because – a year ago, he said the words verbatim, I'm not retiring. And here we are. Looks like he's easing into retirement. Now, God bless him. Everybody should make whatever retirement choices they want to make. But don't tell us the opposite when we're considering a pediatrician. You know what today is? National Cashew Day. Also, um, National Espresso Day. There you have it. And um, it was today in 1876 that Boss Tweed surrendered to authorities in uh, 1876. Fascinating guy, Boss Tweed. And uh, the namesake, of course, of the Tweed Courthouse. And uh, also the birthday today of Franklin Pierce, our 14th president. Guy that most people consider one of the worst presidents of all time, Franklin Pierce. Very charming guy as well. Not a very good president. And, of course, uh, Snooky celebrating her birthday today. I'm surprised they haven't made this a national holiday. And just to go hand-in-hand hand with the synchronicity situation we were talking about before, you know whose birthday it is today? Boris Karloff. Now, what are the chances of that? That would be Boris Karloff's birthday today, and yet I mentioned Boris Karloff last hour? I mean, come on. There's got to be something going on in the universe. Am I right? And, um, all right, uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to email me, you can do so, frank.moreno at wabcradio.com. 15 seconds of fame, your opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I would always complain that uh, there are no good Thanksgiving songs. There's a million great Christmas songs and very few great Thanksgiving songs. 
And so Andy B is a musician, a very talented musician. Some people um, may think that he's not because of the way that he speaks. But, you know, as Andy said, he's talking on the worst phone in the world and he's dealing with Parkinson's. So he's actually very talented. But um, I haven't had a chance to listen to this Thanksgiving song. This could be our ticket to big, big time stardom. All right, if we break that Thanksgiving song, right? 800-848-9222. This is your opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. We are going to be on the air tomorrow. So uh, tune in tomorrow, even though it's Thanksgiving. Same bat time, same bat station. And we will end tomorrow's show as we end every show by giving you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Mary is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mary. Hi, I'm a little nervous. Um, when you were talking before about people with ailments, and, and you jokingly said about uh, having no legs, I don't think that's funny because I have no leg, okay? It's not a joke. Uh, thank you, Mary. I, I, I didn't mean to be insensitive to what you're going through. I'm sorry about that. Richie is in Brooklyn. She's a moron, she's a moron, she's a moron, she's a moron. You know, this is one of the few days I'm actually glad to hear from that guy. Chris is in Greenwood Lake. Go to ProjectVeritas.com. Support James O'Keefe. He's saving American journalism. Support the legal defense firm. ProjectVeritas.com. ProjectVeritas.com. David in the Bronx. As a regular listener and caller and listening to this program for the past hour, I think I need a psych evaluation in the near future. Thank you. Gary on Staten Island. Defund the war in Ukraine. Defund the war in Ukraine. Defund the war in Ukraine. Defund. Eve Frank in Astoria. Yes, uh, when uh, the presidential turkeys, uh, chocolate and chip were being pardoned by President Biden, I wonder what those turkeys were thinking. Weren't they letting the days go by? What have they done? Fred in Yonkers. Good morning, Frank. Just about a year ago, the stork delivered a 13-pound butterball. Happy Thanksgiving to you and Carmine. And we want the flurry dories. We want the flurry dories. Mike in Lake George. Good morning, Frank. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what. Carmine's first birthday is eleven twenty-five. What I'm going to do today? I play my kid's birthday fifty straight, fifty box, and I'm going to play eleven twenty-five. If it comes out at twenty-six hundred dollars, I'll give you a little vig on that, Frank. A hey, little vig. Thank you. Hey, I'll, I'll cut Carmine in. Mike in New Jersey. Buongiorno, Frank. Christina Fontanelli singing opera and guitar. I bet she didn't have a rainbow patch on her gown or a beer in her hand while performing. And finally, Mike on Staten Island. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Happy birthday, Carmine. Hope to see you at the Annadale Tree Lighting Sunday. Yes, Frank. I'm going to be there. When in Woodside, eat at Dino's. I am going to be there. I am going to be doing a couple of radio appearances for WCBM, but I will do it from there. Hey, I just saw this. Uh, today at 11 a.m., there's a, a Connecticut turkey pardoning at Stu Leonard's in um, Berlin Turnpike in Newing- New- Newington, Connecticut. So if you want to see some more turkeys pardoned, if yesterday wasn't enough, Check it out there. Frank Morano, good day.